Okay, welcome everyone. Um, this is Rick, and we have Ainan and Robin today on the show. Ainan and Robin, do you want to say something? Hello. Uh, hi. <laughs> Robin. Yes. Do you want to in introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Robin. I live on the uh, Yakima Reservation in Washington State. And for the, um, <clears throat> I guess, like the, the pedigree info, <laughs> um, I, I uh, well, I actually used to live in Seattle for a decade, and then and so I, I graduated from there uh, with American Indian Studies, and, um, and then I came back home to the reservation because uh, of life and things. But I'm so glad to be home, and uh, I'm really appreciate being able to be on the show. Um, I actually think that this one will probably be uh, published after. So this is my first show. Uh, this is the first time I've ever been on a podcast. Um, but I think it could be published after another show. So even though it's like my first show, I think it'll be the second one that I'm on in chronological order. I'm also a nerd. Um, I like being detail-oriented and nerdy about stuff. So, But I suppose the biggest thing um, that I appreciate being on the show for is the, my uh, lifestyle, which is a vegetarian, which kind of flexes that people are seen as being a vegetarian. But uh, I kind of just, I'm sure other people have said it, but I kind of just claim myself as like an indigenous vegetarian or vegan. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in my spare time, I like to do a lot of eating. So I do a lot of um, and weaving the, the Yakima style baskets. We call them mopas and and corn husk bags or Sally bags is what they call them. But essentially, I, I like being uh, creative. I like using my time um, to the last minute, <clears throat> and I'm always on a journey of healing. Um, I actually had my first counseling, and you know, I'm just open with it. I'm also an open book. Uh, I was at my first counseling yesterday, and then she said that um, I need to get more sleep. So, <laughs> yeah, and, like I'm doing a bit much, and she's like, "You need to get more sleep." I'm like, "Okay." Yeah, can you, can you speak a little bit louder, louder from now on, and then we'll be good. Yes, I'm right up to the phone. I wonder if I need to put in my headphones. We'll see. So, anyways, um, I think you're going to be a regular on the show. I'm gonna, have you decided that or? Yeah, I would love to be. Like that's, okay. that's my goal. I'd like to be a regular. That's good. So um one thing that um I've known you for almost a decade now, you know, when I was when I was living in Washington, and one thing that we always talked about was diets, you know, and food and eating and how to eat in an indigenous way. So do you wanna talk about that? Sure. I uh, <clears throat> actually, when we had just met, and it, it really has been about 10 years, um, it's funny because I had never really kept track of it uh, until my sister pointed it out once. She was like, it's been almost 10 years since you've been a vegetarian or vegan. I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I was like, I didn't even think about that. Um, but when we had first met, I remember we went to a Chinese restaurant with you and Diana, and you guys wanted chicken feet. And I'm going to be honest. That was kind of like the closing of my meat days. 
<clears throat> I bought <laughs> <laughs> People love chickpea, and it tasted great. It's but yummy. Me, it's really cemented. Yeah. <laughs> you and Diana loved it. I was like, oh, I was so happy to see you guys enjoy it. Like, you guys hadn't had me for a while. But um, I was just like, no, I think this is the end for me, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and it just had to do with, um, at that point, for me, cementing it had to do with what I'm okay with. And it was a fluctuation even in the beginning. And <clears throat> to be honest, I had started becoming a vegetarian and a vegan because I had been in a car accident um, back in like, gosh, I can't remember what year it was. It was probably like 2007, 2009. And um, I went to the hospital. They checked me over. <clears throat> but they started uh, really doing more tests because they had seen like um, – signs of uh, like diabetes or pre-diabetes and so that had really kind of kicked me into gear especially with being a native woman and you know my father had a lot of complications with diabetes and my mother was pre-diabetic and I was thinking you know I don't <clears throat> I really to kind of reassess my life I realized I hadn't really enjoyed my life to the fullest at that point and I was thinking I need to think of more in terms of quality and not so much of like quantity though when I think when you're eating and you're taking care of yourself quality kind of comes with quantity for that part at least with your body and so at that point I started um, I was like oh I'm just going to work out you know and I started doing that but um, I also felt that I needed to step it up and I had just been learning more about veganism and vegetarianism and uh, native diet. Ten years ago, it really wasn't a huge conversation at that point. Um, just very few people were talking about it. <clears throat> uh, but I knew that when I ate, like, our traditional salmon, when I ate, um, like, deer meat and, you know, when I go to the mountains or when we go pick berries, um, it felt good, you know. It just kind of took a while to sink in that doing these things the way that I kind of felt that my ancestors had done or that my people had done felt good, you know. It felt good to be there. And before I had been um, visiting with Ainam, we were talking about the same thing, and it was um, it's almost like your body has that memory and um, – as well as the earth has that memory, but it's, I felt a connection being able to eat more traditionally, uh, be involved with things more traditionally, and it just, I, I kind of had to go with what felt better at the time, as well as the benefits were there and they were obvious, and I did get healthier. I got to a healthier weight. I got to um, a healthier mobility, and of course, the next time I had gone in, to do a checkup. It had been so many months later, and uh, they, were, they said they were very impressed with my ability to uh, kind of get into a healthier space. And um, and I, I just enjoy it, you know, and I enjoy it now, and I also enjoy the challenge of um, trying to find creativity in the things that I eat, as well as educating people in a, a very... I, I like to say like a gentle way or like a, a way that's more um, susceptible. Ainan and I had also uh, discussed just kind of the general movement of veganism, vegetarianism in the United States comes 
it's perceived as very privileged, but also it's also perceived as a very militant movement where it's very abrasive to those who um, who practice it and try to disseminate its knowledge to others. It's kind of like, you must do it like this. You must do it like this. And otherwise, you're a murderer. You know, you're talking about like non-native vegans? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will say that. Yeah, non-native vegans. <laughs> and we wanted to be able to, and I, I'm glad that somebody else had had this perspective as well. It's like, you know, you got to meet people where they are and what they can integrate into their lives because it's not going to be, I mean, it's, I'm not asking people to change their whole life around when I, I am in a little sense, but it's like not right now. You don't have to do it as a second. But you can always keep in mind that you can eat indigenously, meaning eat in harmony with the land, as corny as that sounds. I mean, it sounds corny to me, but it's the truth. You know, it's like you're eating in harmony with the land that you're on currently. So, like, eating indigenously to Washington would mean something differently to eating indigenously in the Southwest or in Texas or New Mexico or something. And it's just basically, like, eating the food that's around you that's already there. It kind of already... um, it helps your body adjust to that area and which I think now is probably backed up by like years of science, but you know, native people had been doing that, you know, for time in memoriam and getting back to that, it does make a difference, not only in your health, but just the way that you see things. Um, and also don't beat yourself up if for one day it's like, Oh man, I really want a burger. Or I really want this. Um, it's hard to let go of some of those foods. And even I fall back sometimes on them for convenience or because, you know, I have a big family to feed or, you know, or something like that in time constraints. But, you know, definitely take time out to cook or prepare food more indigenously with more thought, preparation, as well as just, like, giving thanks for the most part is is the biggest part. And that goes down to the very almost inception of hunting um, when you're receiving the food, uh, I told Anon and, and and Ricardo and them about you know my partner. He goes hunting, and I can know down to like the very inception of him just leaving to go hunting. He's already thankful, you know. He's always has he's thankful for the opportunity to go hunting as well as the opportunity that an elk or a deer presents itself, and he can take it and. And, you know, I always try to praise him. I'm like, thank you. You know, you did this entire process. He went out, hunted, skinned it, quartered it, butchered it. And then one day he actually cooked from it. And I was like, you did everything. Like, this is amazing. And it tasted wonderful, of course. But um, in general, I guess I'd just like to say, again, it's just like, don't be hard on yourself for the things that you eat because that's, that's just a whole different issue about eating disorders and things like that which is also very American um, in terms of, like, convenience and then feel bad for it, you know. But um, try to go with what your body feels good with and um, not so much your feelings or your emotions, but with your body. And, like, my body wants to accept this because it's from the earth and, you know, I picked it myself or I knew somebody that picked it. And the less hands that are involved, usually the better. But I guess that's about it in a nutshell. There were like 
tens of little other little things that could be said. And um, it goes into a huge everything. So any, every part of this, I feel like, could be broken down into its own show. But, um, yeah, so that's the most part, just to, just to sum it up. But, I'm, you know, please help me with anything else that I may have forgotten. I none. Um, yeah, we had a great conversation in sort of in prepping for the show. Uh, we talked for like two hours, and we were just like unstoppable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, talking about diet because it's also something plant-based diets is something that I also like feel very well connected to and versed in, and like have been kind of doing my whole life. Well, yeah, in some form or fashion. Um, pretty much a, a big part of my life has been defined by plant-based diets. And I also, I love plants. And so everything I do relates to plants and how I see the world starts with plants. Um, like relationships with Latin is always for me, you know, uh, plant-based, I guess. So it's more than just diet too, I think. But we were, um, I guess we we touched on a lot of different things. Um, some things really controversial, some things not so controversial. Um, but I I think it's important to reiterate that point of eating where you are. Uh, so eating locally, because one of the things that uh, I guess Robin just mentioned is the sort of like militant uh, veganism or vegetarianism from like dominant society. Uh, not just in the U.S., but, you know, it's kind of a worldwide phenomenon, uh, sort of the the whitewashing, right, of veganism um, and what that means. And something that we touched upon that I think is super relevant is kind of like the consumeristic aspect um, and how there's a difference between eating locally and eating more in harmony um, and being having more of an indigenous diet, kind of the way Robin would define it. And the consumeristic vegan diet where you're buying meat substitutes, you know, growing from soy uh, in some other place that perhaps is displacing native peoples or it's at least destroying lots of land, um, you know, and then packaging it in green with, with greenwashing and saying like, oh, it's green, it's good for the planet, but, you know, not necessarily having... Uh, you know, not necessarily being actually like environmental, environmentally friendly. I mean, you get into the politics of soy um, and other like plants that are used for meat substitutes and then how that displaces people and how it can become very violent very quickly. Um, so I thought that was interesting that we were talking about that and there's a, and that there's a distinct difference between like a land a land based plant diet or, you know, land-based diet versus a vegan, more, I don't know, modern-ish, <laughs> yeah. trendy diet. Uh, <laughs> like at Whole Foods kind of a place, kind of a thing. Yeah, you know, like going to Whole Foods, like, yeah. And then we also talked about access and like, you know, who's privileged enough to actually be making purchases at these kinds of places. Um, and how uh, how how non-white communities in the U.S., at least non-affluent white communities in the U.S., uh, don't won't have access to these kinds of things, but also might not have access to land, and so kind of all the politics involved with that and what that means historically, 
um, and moving forward and kind of like thinking about that. Um, maybe I could ask a question um, based off of our conversation and we could see how it goes. Um, and I forgot my question. So, <laughs> crap. Uh, oh, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, or maybe kind of mention, if you wanted to expand on the point. Um, why not? Let's just go for the meat. Let's let's talk about meat. Let's talk okay. about meat politics, and let's talk about how meat is. Um, when we were talking about how meat consumption is directly tied to a person's sense of self and identity, and how that plays out um, right. in these communities. Um, you know what I mean. So <laughs> maybe let's let's start from there and see what happens. So if you wanna if you wanna go ahead and mention anything. Been talking about um, kind of like my philosophies of how I try to eat every day, and I say try because, like I said, it's it's an ongoing process. Um, I also was kind of thinking. I was like, I forgot to mention why not meat. You know, like. I talked about why I do what I do, but also why I not meat. And a lot of it right. I do is when I explain to people um, why I'm not eating at a picnic or something, I just kind of tell them, well, I don't really eat pork or beef or chicken, really, um, primarily because they're just the biggest group of commodified meats within the United States. And trying to explain it at a party is a little difficult sometimes, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're like, what? I was like, what do you mean? I was like, okay. So what I mean is, in the simplest way that I can play it, a lot of the times is they are meats that the United States is, in my opinion, has invested in heavily to make available to everybody everywhere in large quantities. And by that, what they do is they essentially almost change the, the nature of these animals um, not only is it like horrific, and, and I'll, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge that it's not always every single farm is horrific in the way that they treat their animals, but the majority of the large corporate farms are, um, you know, dairy farms and beef, you know, cattle farms. Uh, you know, they're in close proximity, so they need a lot of uh, like vaccinations and things like that in order for them not to get sick. They also need a lot of hormones so that they can also stay big and fat. You know, so that it has no need to sell. Uh, but this, and then they also get fed like food that isn't really food. Sometimes a lot of the times it's grown by Monsanto or Monsanto, you know, sponsored farms or whatever that goes into. So these GMOs get fed to your meat. Um, and so sometimes it's like, is it really like that great for you anyway? I mean, would you do that? Uh, if you had your own personal cow or anything like that, in which uh, Ricardo and I have gotten conversations about different areas, how they raise their own meat and how I would actually probably eat that uh, opposed to anything we would get at the store. Um, probably the biggest thing that's a tip-off of perhaps maybe you shouldn't eat it is if you see it advertised on television without an actual company behind it. You know, So we had went into the discussion of where's the beef? You know, where is the beef? Where is it coming from? Uh, the United States government has a very huge investment since, you know, I want to say almost contact of, you know, what can we derive from this land and how can we benefit it from it? And a lot of it has to do with beef 
um, cattle farms, dairy farms, they never tell you, go to this farm and get this milk, you know, buy it from this person. It's just, in general, please drink milk, you know, eat yeah. beef, you know, where's the beef? Um, or pork, the second white meat, or whatever it else it was that was being pushed through television and uh, radio and everything um, back in the day. I don't see as much now, but it's because I don't really watch commercials anymore, but um, it just has to do with why is it being pushed upon us so heavily? It's because it doesn't matter what industry you're buying your meat from. They, you know, the way that they raise their meat, the land that they're on, everything is all connected back to either the United States or to the big machine of capitalism, kind of keeping you dependent on, I need meat for every meal, which is, uh, I also think is a big misconception, but it's, it's something that I see a lot of people kind of say, oh, you're not eating meat for that meal? You know, and it's like getting rid of meat for that meal. I'm like, but do you need meat at every meal? You know, and it's kind of like um, a hard question to ask sometimes because it's so regularly uh, instilled all the time is that meat must be at every meal or um, you must buy meat every day and... Again, you're not seeing what company is bringing your meat into the grocery store even when you go in there. It's just like this very bland, what do we say, like in styrofoam wrapped in plastic, dyed a different color, mind you, so that it's red. But, um, you know, <laughs> you don't really see it, you know, where it came from or anything like that. And in addition to that, just land politics when it comes to eating meat is a huge issue. Especially, you know, living here on the reservation, I remember back in the 90s, we were talking about how some cattle were able to roam free on our land, and they would obviously kind of ruin the land that they are on, um, as well as even if they're near a creek that had uh, salmon spawning in it, you know, having cattle near the creek, just their urine inside the creek is, was so acidic, it would kill a lot of the spawn that we have in there. And, you know, I'm not saying that's the biggest reason why we didn't have a lot of salmon, but it was a contributing factor to a lot of our land and, and, and in some way our sovereignty in that sense to be able to say, hey, this is where salmon comes through. You know, this is our other livelihood. You know, uh, we have fishermen and we have hunters here. And, you know, that was a contributing factor to not having salmon either in that creek or in that um, spawning ground. In addition to just like, I think we talked about where are these cattle farms, where are they located, you know, and who owns them, those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, and then how that owning of land um, and who owns them is very much a historical continuing violence that's still going on you know that's like it's not colonization is over it's still happening and you know when it comes to food systems this is that's one of the ways that it's still controlled you know um i think uh just to kind of expand on what you were talking about i know we talked about um the place of poverty um and sort of like meat identity um and i kind of wanted to also mention that for a lot of a lot of people um, in the U.S. who you know would be 
defined as like being poor or like growing up in poverty um, or growing out without growing up without a lot, um, like a lot of the communities that we grew up in. You know, um, a lot of a lot of non-affluent white communities. So like in my case, like Mexican American, uh, Native peoples, uh, Black folk, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of the idea of capitalism being the goal um, or the defining. The the, it, the the definition of success, right? And so, like, I know we were talking about how meat consumption within our communities, at least for, like, me and my family, it was, it still is kind of seen as this idea of having meat at every meal equals that, equals success. Right. Um, because it's a, it's a form of showing that you have the resources to consume whatever you want, um, and then I think, you know, we started to dismantle that idea of that's just kind of perpetuating oppression um, because it's, it's, you know, it's inducing these models that are keeping us poor, um, that are keeping us displaced, that are keeping us ignorant, that are keeping us, you know, and how a lot of that is policed not just by the dominant society, but also policed within our own communities too. And I think mm-hmm. that's where me and you especially get a lot of resistance, you know, when we go to family parties and we say, like, oh, I don't eat meat in this particular context, or I don't want to eat this processed, you know, pork or beef or chicken product because I don't know where it comes from, you know? Um, right. And then having to start those conversations at, like, a birthday party <laughs> is not always the most pleasant thing, and it's, all, it's always not, you know, it's, it's really, it can be really difficult, but I think it's it's important, um, and I think that goes back to the the militancy of, of veganism or vegetarianism or even just changing your diet is kind of like when it comes to mainstream culture, that militancy is kind of like a, you know, there's no give and take. It's just yes or no. It's just dominate or be dominated, whereas I think for people who aren't as militant, maybe like ourselves, it's more about, you know, understanding where people are at and understanding the culture that we inhabit and the cultural norms um, and kind of like making little, you know, little steps here and there and kind of like getting people talking at the very least. Um, and, and, you know, like for me, it's always been about like showcasing. It's like leading to example versus like telling people. Um, so, you know, eating less meat or not eating any meat at all at family gatherings and like, you know, and if somebody asks, why didn't you get meat, you can, you know, start talking about it a little, but then, you know, maybe the discussion has to change to something else, or you have to wait for that later, but at least it gets people thinking um, and talking. And I think that was kind of something that we mentioned as, as a way forward, I guess. Um, otherwise, you know, then we're just seen as militant vegans or vegetarians <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> No, it's true. And I think a lot of it has to do with that when you're at a family gathering and, you know, you're with your community, eating is still connected with survival. And it's about yeah. you're still connected with the struggle of surviving and the fact that we have these big uh, community events or feeding, feasts, things like that is to acknowledge that survival and this is what we can provide to how far we've come. And when you don't partake, 
Uh, a lot of the times it's, it's like, well, why aren't you partaking in something that we're doing as a community? Um, yeah. Despite that you're there and all of that stuff, but, you know, at the small, minute sense, they, you know, it does kind of make you stick out like a sore thumb sometimes um, because you kind of have to explain, it's like, I'm here still and I'm just trying to rethink my way of surviving as well as thriving, which um, in discussions with Native communities, a lot of the times it's, it's always hard to get over that survival part and go into a more mm-hmm. thriving and having a quality instead of just a quantity, like, I'm, I'm here the next day, I'm just going to eat what we have in front of me. But now we're in a position to say, I want to be able to control what I'm eating, um, and it's no insult to anybody. And I think that's the biggest part. It's like, this is no insult to you at all. I appreciate what you're making. Um, and sometimes I'll even make a leeway if it, I feel like it's that kind of um, situation where I just kind of need to uh, not be insulting. And I think that's the biggest part is I don't want to – offend anybody with what I'm doing for myself. And again, that's just something I'm doing for myself. And I want to be able to let you know that I appreciate what you've given me and I'm going to make the best of it the way, you know, that aligns with my lifestyle. But yeah, I think connection between survival and providing food is the biggest part as well as it being intermingled with the conception of meat being the highest level of survival, you know, mm-hmm. of what we can provide to survive. Um, despite, you know, and then on the other side, having uh, the militant veganism and vegetarians kind of like, it's it's the antithesis of that. It's not always about surviving. It's about um, control. You know what I mean? It's more about control than it is about surviving. So yeah. I, I kind of feel that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I think yeah. I, I, I will, uh, the conversation I had with you, I know, one time, um, Diana and I were part of like we were feeding the homeless, right? And, and on Sundays here in San Antonio, and the vegan organization was like, you can only well, they weren't, they weren't vegan, they were anarchists, but there were vegans there, and they were like, you could only give them vegan vegan things, and I was like, we can't give, we can't feed them, you know, like um, these people like meats or cheese, and they're like, no straight vegan i was like okay and then even like then like they would get mad when when diana made something elaborate it was like all about all about control you know and that would to me i I really do see that yeah i think it's how it's it's how we conceptualize food right i think i think there's a there's at least for the three of us there's a radically different and i don't even like using the term radical because to me it's not radical it's just should be part of everyday life uh, right. <laughs> um, worldview when it comes to food and appreciation, right? Like we don't see food as like a commercial product. Um, I know like in, in my conversations with you, Robin, and also knowing Rick for a while, it's, we try to eat as locally as possible and try to support, you know, the local, the local ecology, you know, through food, through diet. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, for me, it's just such a different worldview than what we're conditioned that, or what we're told to how to consume, right? Because in a consumeristic society, it's not just about we have the option to consume. It's also we're being told exactly how we have to do it, and we're being policed by dominant society, but also by our communities and our own family members um, how to consume, right? 
Um, right. And I like that you, you talked about that, and it brings up sort of the issue of food systems and how we don't really look at that too much. Like we don't, we think of food as this sort of like individualistic choice um, or this idea, you know, the very, uh, the very American ideal of like, oh, you know, like freedom and individual freedoms and all that crap. But in, in practice, that doesn't really work for us. Um, it never has. Um, and it's, it's really hard to go against the grain of your own community, especially when it's connected to, you know, these very meat-heavy consumeristic ideals that you're questioning, you know, for the benefit of the community, even if they can't necessarily see that right away. Um, and it's hard to go against that grain and like, you know, and then you have things like in Rick's situation where other people are policing you or there's a sort of definition as to the type of people that quote unquote deserve certain types of food and those that don't, right? Like why, would, why wouldn't you want to make something elaborate uh, for homeless people that you're trying to feed because they're people, you know? <laughs> um, they're not... You know, they're not less worthy of good food. You know, like good diet and good food is something that everybody, you know, should be entitled to, but not in the sense of let's apply one diet to everybody, which is what, you know, our government does, but in the sense of like how do you take food and use it, you know, to uh, like, to do food sovereignty, you know, like when you're talking about Native peoples especially, like how do you use food to really amplify movements, to really connect people back to the earth, you know, to really like thrive as opposed to just trying to survive. Um, and I also wanted to mention uh, when you talked about survival, I know this is something that we talked about a lot um, before the episode the idea of these foods being tied to survival and how those narratives can be very tricky. Um, and when we call them out, it can be very infuriating to, you know, the communities that we, that we are a part of or the ones that we were born into. And we kind of use, like in my case, it's like calling out tamales, like, you know, um, saying like, okay, tamales are good, but we don't have to eat them every day, or we could make meatless tamales, or we don't have to use lard in our tamales, you know? That's like heresy in my community. <laughs> um, for me to say that is like, you know, like what are you talking about? That's our traditional food. Um, and it's like, is it? You know, because we didn't have pork or lard. Like, you know, the continents and like the Americas didn't have pork and didn't use lard in the same ways until after the Spanish came, you know, and if you want to really look at it, those kinds of fatty foods were used as a way to kill off populations in the hopes that they would get a lot of really terrible health effects um, and die off, you know, so they were a part of trying to control and trying to erase undesirable people. Um, yeah. You know, but to say that is kind of like, you know, you, you can't, you can't, you can't do that. And also like tamales, I'm not critiquing tamales, but it's also saying like, there, it serves a purpose, right? Like it's a survival food because when we had to work in the fields all day long, we needed a nutrient dense fatty food that was going to get us through the day too. So our bodies didn't shut down, right? 
Um, so we ate a couple of tamales or whatever or some other nutrient, some other fatty food that would allow us to, you know, sustain work throughout the day in the field. But then now, you know, we're detached from from picking cotton or like harvesting corn or whatever we did. Um, and now our life is sedentary. But so the lifestyle has changed, but our diet has not. So of course, there's going to be a lot of health impacts with that because your body can process, you know, fats um, and things like that if you're working out all day long. <laughs> it's yeah. less so when you're not doing that. And so to hold on vehemently to that really fatty food when you have a change, a, a dramatic change in lifestyle, you know, to me is another way of us kind of oppressing ourselves. But it's also very intelligently designed because then you have the narratives of look at these communities of color. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know any better. So we don't have to give them certain rights. We don't have to give them certain initiatives. We don't have to treat them like people. And maybe they'll just disappear. So the narrative hasn't ended, right? The colonial narrative is still very prevalent, um, especially in this country, but just worldwide, especially when you start looking at meat consumptions and the different systems that um, induce meat consumption around the world. So, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think... No, it, oh, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead, Rick. You know, there's one thing, ahead, like, Rick. people people can, like, if they want to, you know, eat meat, but they want to, you know, harvest or grow their own chickens, it, you know, they can, you know? But sometimes I feel like counties or cities, like, they create laws to let, not let people, you know... Um, you know, have chicken farms in their backyard because really, like, growing chickens is really easy. You know, and that that will also affect yeah. like the chicken industry if everybody or a, a lot of our neighbors, you know, fifty percent of our neighbors, you know, grew grew their own chickens. Can you imagine that what that would do to like the poultry industry? You know, and but but it's very simple to do. You know, and I feel like same thing with gardening. Like we've got to have lawns instead of like gardens. We gotta like listen to our associations, yeah. and it's like, why? Like, if everybody did, did you know, <laughs> gardening or community gardens, it wouldn't be. We wouldn't have to rely on like, you know, grocery stores as much. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! Uh, no, it's true. Uh, a lot of it, I think, does. I think there's a number somewhere that talks about each person in the, at least in the United States, represents so many thousands of dollars. Uh, that goes to the meat industry, that goes to poultry or, you know, things like that. And if you take away that person who no longer contributes to that corporation or that um, industry, you know, that X number of dollars that's gone, um, as well as, let's say, if you were to use those chickens to provide, you know, meat for you and your neighbors, like a neighbor, even one neighbor in their family, that's also like, Five people gone from that, you know, industry now, and that's X number of thousands of dollars times five or times ten or however much. And a lot of it, I, I hate to say it, a lot of it is money-based, but if I can touch back onto a little bit what Ainan was um, coming to in terms of survival food, um, a lot of the time survival food is a way to show that we survived. You know, a lot of these atrocities that have happened to our communities and our nations, essentially, our indigenous native nations 
And one of the biggest ones I feel like gets a lot of flack is um, fry bread, of course. And I, you know, I've heard a lot of people, Native people who are vehemently just against fry bread. And on one sense, yeah, I, I can agree. It's like you probably shouldn't eat fry bread all the time, you know, <laughs> you know, because yeah. um, it essentially it's, it's just bread fried, you know, it's just something fried. It's like the tamale situation. Right. And you should eat anything fried all the time. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't even have to be bread, you know, just as long as you're like not eating fried things all the time. It's probably good for your body. But on one hand, it is about a history of essentially we were barred from going to our traditional lands, like the reservation area uh, encompassed. You stay on this reservation, you and your people, and you are not allowed to go hunting. You are not allowed to go fishing or gathering your foods. We're going to put you on this, the crappiest land that we could find, and you're confined here. The only thing you can eat is what we give you. And a lot of the times it was rations that were left over from the United States Army, and that was like what essentially what the ingredients of, fried bread was and you know oils and lard um flour you know things like that sugar um in a lot of the times you know you either had to get in line to get these rations or you know people were trying any way to survive but essentially that's what it is it's survival food it represents an era of survival and so while i enjoy you know fry bread sometimes I like the way it tastes. It doesn't taste horrible. I like it, but, you know, it's not something I'm going to eat every day. But I also eat it acknowledging that um, some people, um, not people, but, you know, it means that we survived this era and we're going to take it up a next notch. We're going to make it a part of our our culture because it is a part of our culture now, Um, our new cultures that we're always creating because, just like what we're talking about, everything's fluid um, in terms of diet, in terms of the way you're living, so is culture. And so that includes fry bread. And I agree it's not the best for you, so don't always eat it. But I also am not against people eating it every now and then just to be like, hey, we survived. But also, what can we have in addition to fry bread? Like we can't just depend yeah. on it. And we don't have to depend on it. Um, it's It's something that I think deserves some more time for, I think, a larger audience even to discuss. But I feel, in addition to fry bread, at this meal, let's also have, you know, elk stew. Let's also have something else that is very nutritious that goes along with it or something that gives you a sustenance that will make you feel better. Because I'll be honest, if I eat too much fry bread, if I eat a lot in a day or something, it does feel bad because it's, like, bad, good for you. Um, just the same as if you eat a lot of fast food or if you eat a lot of this or this, you know, it's just too much of it is not going to feel great. But um, so, and that goes along with the narrative of when you're at a party or you're at something and there's fry bread there, uh, a lot of times they want Indian tacos, so that's just a whole other level. <laughs> I was like, is there meat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll just have a fry bread and I'll have everything else. <laughs> They're like, okay, you know, and I get weird looks, but um, it starts the conversation of like we're eating survival food in a way with our community that still exemplifies we're trying to just survive. 
And in addition, I think it needs to be knocked up a level. It's like, how are we going to thrive? Let's all enjoy. Yeah. I'm currently I'm obsessed with like I I don't eat like cured meats or anything, but I like watching videos on charcuterie boards. I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that. You know, with, um, <laughs> fruit. You know, I'm always thinking of like, what can I put in there instead? I'm like, oh yeah, I can use that for fruit or something. You know, like, and I'd love to take that to a party just to have beautiful array of different colors of fruit and vegetables um, in addition to whatever else. So a lot of the times when I go to a party, I try to think, how can I contribute to this in a way that um, shows that not every dish needs to have meat or not everything needs to have meat in it or um, needs to be a survival food. We can always find, like, beautiful ways to celebrate, like, non-meat foods. I don't know. That's a better way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Um... We also, like, on that note, um, it's also about intentional relationships with food, right? Like, um, in the case of fry bread, like, you know, like, understanding that where that food comes from and sort of the history behind it, um, that's different, you know, eating it for sort of, like, community purposes or sort of, like, remembering or memory um, to carry on, you know, the stories um, that's different than just mindlessly eating it because it's there or because you you don't know why, but you just you just have to eat it, right? Um, yeah. So it, maybe intentional is not the right word, but being being really mindful of like relationships with what you're consuming and what you're putting in your mouth. Um, and I know we talked a lot about sort of how what you what you eat is very much tied to like how you view land um how you interact with the surrounding ecology around you you know um for me like that's why i i love i love plants i love eating plants i love looking at plants i love harvesting plants i love growing plants cuz to me that's just like the way to connect to um everything around me, you know, and it's a way to sort of like be very mindful of what I'm eating um, wherever I'm living. Um, and that's not something that I think a lot of people consciously do or have necessarily like been brought up. Or, and there's also not a lot of like resources to be able to do that. Um, so there's not, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of like community support for that, like at a, at a broader level. Um, and we're starting to see like movements, you know, little movements within cities and towns and whatever, but it's still not at the level that I'd like to see it. And I think most people would like to see it, but I think that's kind of why um, indigenous sovereignty, sovereignty comes into play, right? And why diet is super political. Um, it yeah. shouldn't necessarily be political, but it is because you know, what you eat has consequences and what you're growing on what land, you know, also has consequences. And if you're not, and if it's meat, especially, you know, like the meat that you're growing on certain land to consume has a lot of values inherent in that, you know, for better or worse, there are values within that consumption. And I think one of the biggest ways to really, one of the biggest and sort of most effective, but also maybe one of the easier ways of like practical everyday life is to change your diet, you know, um, is yeah. to really think about your diet and what you're putting into your body 
and you know using that as a sort of like political act but not not like a political let's start waving a certain flag let's become militant let's you know have marches and whatever but just like a very intentional you know way to state like where you are in relationship to yourself and to the land and like what you value and I think a lot of people don't necessarily do that when they're eating or they're, you know, we, we're not raised like that. And, and it's really hard to break out of that mentality in order to be able to just think, be a little bit more conscious of when you're eating and where your food's coming from. Um, and, you know, so, giving... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so um, I feel like it has a very direct impact for at least, you know, my people who live on the Yakima Reservation, we have a 26 or 23 million acre reservation. We also have areas of it that are uh, ceded, um, which means it's like it's a part of our negotiation with the United States. Yeah. And so while it's not a part of our reservation, it's still an area that we can gather food. And we also have a part of our reservation that's closed off that only um, enrolled members can go into and gather food. And that's where we have a lot of our huckleberries, a lot of our roots, a lot of the deer that we hunt, those kinds of things, and the elk. But I also feel that even surrounding areas, when they are polluted or when they are, um, you know, used so much, you know, for either cattle or something, that it's just kind of like you can't grow anything there later on. All you can use it for is cattle or all you can use it for is like this certain thing or it's just um, overdeveloped. I feel like sometimes that is almost a direct hit towards our sovereignty and our ability to gather those foods and eat them and survive off of them because we really do have the gamut of people on our reservation from transit. Like we have a large transit population and homeless population into those of us who are just working every day. And when we are able to go up to the mountains, you know, we do see things that are from the environment that directly impact our traditional foods. And we are not a farming. So we do have, we're a large agricultural area, but we do not, we're not traditionally farmers. We essentially knew that we needed to take care of the land so the land would provide us with what we needed. So everything we get is wild. So wild huckleberries, wild roots, things like that. And when the environment around us has changed so dramatically, you know, our huckleberries are growing either out of season or too fast or too early. Um, mm -hmm. We see these impacts, and it does direct our livelihood, like, directly. And um, we have people who do provide for our longhouses, our food systems, our ceremonies. And when it's too early or something, it's hard for us to know when to have these ceremonies because the, the clock is off. And it has to do a lot with global warming. It has a lot to do with our environment. It's getting too hot in the summers. It's getting too cold in the winters, you know. And it was different from 10 years ago when I'm, I, you know, when I first came back. And it's different from when I was a kid. And, you know, it's just that fast of how meat industries and all these industries that um, kind of run rampant in the United States yeah. impact directly yeah. our sovereignty our ability to eat these foods and just survive in that sense and it makes us dependent on them you know whereas yes. we have to go to the grocery store you know we have one grocery store in our reservation um that's kind of a bigger grocery store and it's like constantly packed all the time 
Um, and we also have like transit people who are waiting outside there. And, you know, it's just like it's the hub of our reservation and we have to go there uh, when we have a party and we have a thing, you know, like, oh, we need this and this and this. And so that's kind of where we have to go instead of like, I can't really go to the mountains today to get this. I can't really go here to get this. Um, and when we do, it's either too early, too late in the season. So mm -hmm. I feel definitely what you're saying about um, indigenous sovereignty as well as just my nation's sovereignty in general is always affected by what we eat constantly and what the nation eats yeah. constantly. Yeah, I have an, uh, a comment. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you know, living in Washington, there's things I observed being native and not and being native from not in the area. One is like how they have um, salmon fishing for non-natives, like open at a certain time of year, you know, and they can only get certain right. certain number of salmon. From what I saw, there was a lot of people that abused that. They were non-native, right? They'll be like, oh, as long as the authorities don't catch you catching more fish than you know, then you are authorized and it's fine. Or they would go salmon fishing and in like secret spots, you know, that they have that on the times they're not allowed to go fishing, you know. And even when I was, you know, in the army, like even the army people would ask me like, hey, can't you like go fishing for salmon? Take us. I was like, first off, I'm Comanche. We didn't, we didn't salmon fish. And two, like there's tribes that they have treaty rights, right, to the fishing about who right. can fish, how they can fish, where they can fish. And people don't care about that shit. You know, they, they all they care about is like getting salmon because it's too expensive at the grocery store. But they want to like exploit, you know, the salmon, you know, without having a relationship with, you know, the land, <clears throat> without the land or without the, um, um, the, uh, the indigenous people, the local indigenous. I just find that, you know, like even reading the history of like like the Macaw tribe, you know, in, the, in their whaling and how there was like the militant uh vegetarians, militant vegans, how they used to make signs of like, kill the Indian, Wait, save huh? the whale, you know? And it's just like, what the fuck? Yeah. It's yeah. Just, that's total colonization. That's nope. very, very aggressive, you know? And it, it's all about sovereignty. Nope. Like they have sovereignty. They have treaty rights to whale hunt, you know? And just because these people uh, want to push their diets or push their agenda, they want to colonize indigenous people, you know, and and infringe their rights, you know, their sovereignty. And that thing is, you know, my observation living in Washington is a lot of people like to infringe on the, the, the salmon, you know. No, you're right. So back in 1974, they had the Bolt decision, and that's directly has to do. So before, prior to 74, um, like on the Columbia River or any river that had a lot of salmon, um, there was no regulation for non-natives or corporations to go out and, you know, catch fish and get fish. They'd come up with, like, fish ladders. Or they're, like, getting fish at, a like, an abnormally high rate where it was directly affecting, again, our survival. Um, we had a lot of people who live on the river who just survive on salmon and fish and different kinds of trout. And it was getting so rampant that there was hardly any fish left. So it was severely overfished. So in 74, uh, the judge, uh, George Bolt, he made the Bolt decision, which uh, kind of stopped that. And obviously there's tensions about it, but it's a, essentially 50% of what's in the river can be fished at certain times of the year for commercial fishing. And then the other is for Native people. So it's like you can't impede on their sovereign rights as fisher people. Also, I think what gets forgotten about this is 
not only do we get rights to fish and hunt uh, in the areas that was negotiated within our treaties, but also it means that we have the right to fight for the conditions in order us to continue to fish and hunt um, in those areas, which means we can advocate for the environment to be better in those places. It's like, sure, how can we get 50% of a river that no longer has fish? Like 50% of nothing is nothing. So, you know, we're going to always fight for the availability to, for our sovereignty, as well as our ability to keep those places clean and um, livable, you know. And when I was talking about cattle going into our uh, closed areas and things like that, you know, it's, it impedes on our sovereignty when our environment is deteriorating because it's like, how are we going to, you know, a lot of the times if you get down to the nitty-gritty, as a Native person, our land is how we define ourselves. Um, our food is how we define ourselves, our language. And when those go away, it's like, sure, we're politically a Native person, but, you know, who are we without our culture, without our land and our people? And so that's why we fight so vehemently for those things, because um, that's what created us, and that's where we came from. Um, and then when it goes back to diet, you know, it's just kind of like, I, I don't, in the essence of what I tell people that maybe they, they're not getting and I'm not sure if it's even safe for me to say to them at that time in their life, it's like I don't want to contribute to uh, the large dominant society of capitalism that impedes at times on our sovereignty. You know, I don't want to contribute to that, essentially, as well as it just doesn't sit well with my body anymore. Um, I told Ayanon, I was like, when I had stopped eating, and if I were to ever try meat, and sometimes I accidentally do, like someone doesn't tell me, like I'm at a party or something, it's like, oh, that has bacon in it, or that has something in it, and I ingest it, it hurts, you know, it hurts uh, my brain, yeah. my headache, you know, just like, oh, this has something in it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, my body is no longer conditioned for meat consumption, for sure. <laughs> and, you know, we had also talked about, like, when you're getting yourself off of meat or when you're not eating as much meat, you know, you change. Your body changes. Yeah. Your taste buds change. Um, and it's like meat will never taste the way that it did to me when I was younger or when I was, uh, like, a few years ago. It, it just will not have that satisfaction that my memory has. And that seems sad, but it also means that I, I can explore other things and not have to have to try to chase that taste anywhere. Um, yeah. So it's just kind of like, I don't know where I was going with that. but It's like cheese, <laughs> very addictive, but you're like, oh, man, I shouldn't eat that. Oh, no, right, totally, <laughs> cheese. And so, again, that's something that I discuss about being uh, gentle with yourself so you can accept things. Um, sometimes I fall back and I eat cheese. That's why sometimes I'm vegetarian, sometimes I'm vegan. Um, and it is addicting. So uh, Ainon and I talked about sometimes how people really advocate for meat. And I sometimes I even get people who try to trick me into eating it or who try to get me to eat it almost forcibly. Or <laughs> That's that, weird. You know? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of it is we had discussed. It's like, it's like an addiction, you know. 
why do we have to have it at every meal? Why does it need to be integrated into everything we're eating when it's not even necessary for that dish or something like that? And a lot of it is because it does have addicting quality, and it is a part of that big corporate machine mm-hmm. that wants you just to have more and more and more. Um, so I can understand. That's why I try to be gentle with people. It's like I know it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like talking to an addict. It's like this is so readily available and it's so accepted that it's hard to imagine not having it. And I yeah. can understand that I was there before too. I was like, I can't imagine not having it. And I, I would say often like, I can't do it. Like I can't eat without meat. But you know, that's what I said before I started to not eat meat. So <laughs> it's possible, but it's like, I know it's not for everybody or not for everybody at this time in their life. And, um, I'm always trying to be there not to make anybody feel dumb about it, but I just want to be able to uh, inform anybody if they want to know, which, again, was a discussion we had. It's like, which is different from, like, save a whale, kill a native, you know, which is different from that. And also the sovereignty level, and that is different from the community level of killing one whale, like, every so many years or every year, opposed to... X number of thousands of cows a day, you know. Yeah. So there's a difference. Yeah, I think I, think, I, I wanted go to. Ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Rick. Go ahead. You you can go. Oh, okay. Um, I I wanted because I think the term sovereignty gets you know it gets thrown around a lot and in in sort of like maybe people are thinking about indigenous rights and it's like sovereignty. Well, you know what is that kind of thing? Um, and I kind of wanted to just talk about that maybe a little bit and for me like I I don't um, identify as indigenous in the strictest political sense Um, you know we me and Rick have talked about this (laughs) so much um, and kind of like border people's kind of co-opting indigenous identity especially like within Chicano movements and all that stuff Um, so you know for me it's, it's kind of like when I talk about sovereignty or why indigenous people's sovereignty is important it always turns into a different type of conversation, you know, like me not being a a native person, quote unquote, um, and being able to speak for my community in that strictest sense. And so, you know, there might be a lot of questions of like, why should I care? You know, like why, who cares? You know, like you're not native, like why would you care about helping indigenous people gain their sovereignty? And for me, it's, you know, it has a lot to do with diet. It has a lot to do with that. But I think when it comes to sovereignty in our dominant society, when we hear that word, a lot of people interpret it as an us versus them sort of thing, right? So a lot of people, it's that fear that's like induced in the popular narrative of the term sovereignty of if we give indigenous people their sovereignty, that means they're going to take all their land back. And that means we no longer have control over this land. Um, And that's scary, right? Because, oh my God, these savage natives, what are they going to do when they have all their land back, right? So the the, the historical narrative of the savage native hasn't changed. (laughs) Um, If it had, we wouldn't be so concerned with indigenous sovereignty because we would understand that giving people the land back, you know, is actually beneficial for the land, which is beneficial for the people, which is beneficial for all the people, Um, And I think sovereignty isn't an us versus them. It's more about radically, and I use that in quotes, addressing how we view 
the land, you know, how we view the earth, how we view the, the air, how we view the water, um, and sort of like starting to develop relationships with that. Um, and I think that's really important for non-Indigenous people to understand too, is that at least from my perspective, like Indigenous sovereignty isn't about necessarily kicking anyone out. I mean, it can be, you know, if those relationships are very exploitative and very damaging to the environment, but it's kind of, for me, it's, it's a way to move forward as like a planet because it's, you know, it's, it, there's very intimate, very long, deep relationships that Indigenous people have with the land. And so for me, it's really important to center those voices first before we start injecting any sort of like of our opinions or our ideas and kind of like, you know, it's not, it's a two-way street and kind of like thinking about what can we learn from each other? Um, what sorts of traditions do we have that are going to, you know, be beneficial ultimately, not for us per se, but for the land? Because if the land is healthy and the land is productive, we're healthy and productive, and not just us as a species, all the other species are healthy and productive as well. Um, and so I think like when we say sovereignty, I think that's more what, what, what is meant by sovereignty, not, right. you know, let's create these artificial borders and kick people who are not enrolled tribal members out of, you know, right. this certain specific bordered area. Because ecologically, there are no borders. It's ridiculous to think that there's, you know, we can put up a fence and, like, it's going to whatever. You know, like, if you think about the border wall that's being, you know, that's being built, it's like ecology is going to be affected by that. But from an ecological standpoint, that border wall is imaginary. You know, like, that's something that we have imagined up um, out of fear, and that's something that's going to have direct ecological impacts, but that doesn't mean that that's a, a natural, you know, nature-induced barrier. Uh, <laughs> it's not a fault line, you know, that's dipped into the earth. It's like something that we literally just made up, and I think, you know, it's, that's a, the border wall is a physical manifestation of our ideological border walls, and I think when people hear the word sovereignty or indigenous autonomy or agency or whatever, that's immediately what comes to mind when you're not native and you haven't necessarily engaged with, you know, native folks or native scholarship or, or you know, no, too familiar true. with it. Go I ahead. feel that as a native person who lives on the reservation, um, who's lived here, you know, aside from being away for 10 years, I was raised here and I'm coming back here. I feel sovereignty is integrated into our everyday life, whether we say it or not. A lot of it has to do with our ability to to have say over ourselves. And down to the fundamental is have say over my own body, you know, over my family, um, over my community and my tribe. And people, like you said, they tend to see it as a us versus them. But essentially, our sovereignty has always been there. Um, the, what treaties to me are just a recognition from the United States that, hey, their sovereignty has always been there. And mm -hmm. what I think people tend to forget on a very legal level 
is that treaties and our sovereignty are on par with the Constitution with the United States. Yeah. And this is also the supreme law of the land. And that also means that if our sovereignty deteriorates, so does the Constitution of the United States. So does everybody else's rights. You know, because if you're not going to acknowledge treaty rights, you're not acknowledging um, whatever rights it is you have as a citizen. Because it's just, it, it comes down to history. It's, it's saying, I understand that these people have been here for time and memoriam, and this is what they know about their land. And I want to say the, the knowledge that I have about our land and our roots and stuff comes directly from, you know, whatever the origins I feel of our people are. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like if you're going to impede on that, it's just impeding. Uh, sure, maybe one day, you know, if they envision what the United States initially had wanted to do, which was exterminate Native people. If you're going to exterminate Native people, you're exterminating not only this knowledge of this land, but also just your rights as a human because it's like, okay, let's just get rid of the people, you know, and, and this knowledge. Um, so sovereignty for me has a very, like, practical as well as not just a spiritual sense, but it, it goes back to um, just acknowledging, hey, we know that you were here, and we, you know, obviously we're a force coming in, but we also know that you have some insight and knowledge into this land. And for me, it, it's been a term that's been uh, instilled into me since I was a young child from my grandmother, who was a legal secretary, actually. So <laughs> she was like very. <laughs> So it was important to her to always say, you know, like, understand your sovereignty and what it means, read your treaties, know your rights, because it is the supreme law of the land. And she meant that with all of her heart, you know. And a lot of that has to do uh, with, because, you know, she came from the era of relocation. She came from the era of um, boarding schools, and she did go to a boarding school. And so she kind of really felt the abrupt eras of, you know, what sovereignty meant to her, and then seeing the resurgence through uh, things like reclaiming and stuff like that. And so sovereignty for me, when I say, like, this impedes on our sovereignty, this impedes on our ability to function as a people as we had already always done and how we have the right to. to. Um, and it's not about us versus them. And if we are to say a them, it's basically the mindset of, let's disrupt what you're doing and do it my way, you know, which I feel, unfortunately, is just how the United States tends to work and the government tends to work at times. So it's it's like sovereignty for me is to be able to let people come to their natural state and rule and and have their own self-control and their own self-governance of themselves down to, like, one person. It's like, I'm not going to make you do this. You know, but this is how I've been living, and if you want to learn about it, that's great, you know. But I'm not going to come in and say, you need to stop eating meat. You need to stop doing this, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> you know, yeah. what, what are you going to get? You're going to get pushback, you know. You're always going to yeah. get pushback. And it's just kind of like, no, please come and learn about this, and this is how I do it, and it's doable. Um, so I think Ainan, you and I had to discuss that. Essentially, it's just kind of like how can we not – force people to do things. It's not what we're about. Um, but we are about, if you were to do this, it would help strengthen our sovereignty. It would help strengthen 
you know, our uh, history in a more positive way, in a more healing way. And it's just kind of, it, it's going to be hard to go against X number of years of survival mode that's still intact right now. That's still like, I just got to survive from day to day. Yeah. And so there's, there's always that wall. But again, I'm so happy you brought up that sovereignty is always seen as like us versus them when it's not, you know. It's just, I feel that Native people who have a treaty and who are on sovereign land are the first forefront in terms of what is it going to look like for the United States if our rights and our sovereignty is deteriorated? It's just the first step to, um, you know, what do they call it? Which is one supreme ruler or whatever. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it's just the first step and an indicator of where the nation would be going if you start deteriorating tribal rights and sovereignty. Yeah, and yeah, I have a, I have a comment. All of that. Um, go ahead. You go ahead. You know, we're talking about sovereign sovereignty, full sovereignty, and, you know, it, I think it also goes to with, like, misappropriation a little bit. I don't know if you notice it or not, yeah. but there's, like, uh, I've seen, like, articles and videos of how, like, non-natives, they go into Mexico, they learn, like, the recipes from the indigenous people in Mexico, and next, you know, they come up and they open up, like, a Mexican restaurant, even though they're not Mexican themselves, you know? And then, like, they, they you know, they, they profit from our knowledge, our, our recipes, our you know, our, our history to me, you know, we have to be really careful from even the ingredients themselves, like the spe- you know, special mm-hmm. kind of corn or potatoes or, or the herbs, whatever, the seeds of these plants, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's almost like commodified. It is commodified, you know, and I feel like, no, it's what I can hear you. It's like, no, no, I can see it. Is. You're right. And, um, that also, again, has to do with sovereignty as well, but, the thing that I always thought was neat is uh, things like huckleberries and our roots, at least in my region, those cannot be domesticated. Like, it's been tried for so long. And even if it was domesticated, like I, I tell you, it would taste the same or feel the same. Um, you know, things like And then I think Ainan and I had talked about, like, when you do go to the grocery store or you do buy something in bulk, how it's really so watered down and it's been through so many hands and it's been transported so far away from where it originally was. It's, it's kind of like water, you know, at that point. And not good water. <laughs> <laughs> the case is not there. And just in general, the commodification of anything is just kind of like it really deteriorates the quality of it. Um, and it's, yeah, I see people who... D- well, I haven't really seen any over here, um, but I just want to say that sometimes it's, uh, it's neat for me to see our land's own defense mechanism to say we're not going to be, like, we're not going to be um, domesticated. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I want to, I want to mention the last point about sovereignty and then talk about that um, food sort of like the commodification. So just going back to the sovereignty point, I think um, a lot of the times, especially like from our perspective, we talk about the U.S. context, right? And when it comes to like talking about sovereignty, the U.S. gets mentioned a lot as like whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, But just like contextually, um, the idea of borders that we were kind of talking about, these ideological borders, 
they're not U.S. specific. They're very much a, a product, I guess, of of deep colonization and kind of the way it's functioned around the world has been very similar. Um, and it's that I mean, to me, that's super interesting because it's it's really how colonization was very thoughtful, very strategic, very planned out, um, and it still continues. And I think it's it's really easy for folks in the U.S. to get caught up in the American exceptionalism of like you know like oh the U.S. is so much different than the rest of the world blah 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 blah. Um, you know, that's definitely something I've experienced living in other countries um, with a lot of Americans, uh, thinking that it's such a different place. But then kind of when you start interacting with, like, indigenous peoples of other places, or at least you start learning about the history, you start to recognize that the way colonization was done in the Americas, it, it was very much a worldwide phenomenon. And so I'm thinking about, like, places like Canada, you know, when you start thinking about, like, First Nations people and how they were treated in Canada, it's very similar to the ways that they, um, peoples were treated in the Americas, you know, throughout South America, throughout Mexico, um, throughout the U.S. But then I also think about contextually, like, especially with the British um, presence uh, within Australia and New Zealand, um, and how when it comes to meat specifically, pasteurization, not pasteurization, that's a different term, but like put, make, putting cows out to pasture was a way of controlling land. It was a way of decimating people's livelihoods, um, yes. particularly, well, everywhere, right? But especially like you still see remnants of that in New Zealand. There's a lot of that that still goes on in Australia. There's tons of that here, you know, and there's a lot in Canada as well. And then, you know, if you start thinking about, like, Brazil and the displacement of indigenous people and sort of the clear-cutting of forests to make room for cattle pasture land, you know, that's kind of like an ongoing phenomenon. And not to take it back to meat too much, but also thinking about, you know, like, when you have that packaged steak, when you have that packaged ground beef, like, that's the history that you're consuming. That's the history that's within that styrofoam and that plastic wrapped, you know, dead flesh is that. You know, you're eating, that's what you're eating. You're basically like, for me, it's very much you're eating colonization, you know? And, and that is very like, it's not to say like, you know, like, oh my God, eating meat is evil. It's to say that you need to acknowledge that you know, you need to acknowledge that sort of, like, discomfort, that sort of, like, revelation of this meat that I'm eating is tied to displacement. It's tied to a loss of knowledge. It's tied to land destruction, you know, and yeah. it kind of goes back to the that idea that you were talking about. It's like, it's only, it's only detrimental to everyone. You know, anything that's going to be detrimental to indigenous sovereignty eventually is going to be detrimental to the planet, which means eventually it's going to be detrimental to non-Native people as well, um, yeah. you know, no matter how you look at it, because none of us can live without land. You know, we all have to drink clean water in order to survive. We have to breathe clean air. You know, our food has to grow. <laughs> if it doesn't do that, we die. You know, no matter how processed our products are, 
they always have to come from the earth. You know, like we don't have the sort of detachment. We don't have the sort of technology where we can, you know, create food out of like extraterrestrial space, you know. Um, like we can't do that. So like if we're not acknowledging that, then it's kind of like, it's kind of this big delusion, right? We're all kind of just deluding ourselves um, into like, oh, well, I can just have a hamburger today because I earned it or I deserved it or whatever. It's not a big deal. Like, who cares kind of thing. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the last, yeah. I, don't, I think I went on the tangent there. But. That's good. <laughs> I think you're breaking but, up. So I want to... You're breaking up. Okay, sorry. Can you see better? You're a little choppy. Uh, yes. Hello. So, okay. what I also want to uh, acknowledge thing about sovereignty context of its opposition or what its perceived opposition was the United States, but I also want to say that um, I think indigenous people had an acknowledged sovereignty amongst other indigenous people also for time in memoriam. So yeah. it's like we're not going to go over and like the Yakos aren't going to go over and tell Atulela how to do something or go over to tell um, the you know, muckle shoots or anybody else in our regions, like this is how you need to change your religion. This is how you need to do your thing. Um, but we also weren't above asking people, how can we do this? How can we do that? You know, we obviously saw the value of diversity in our nation. And uh, we liked it because it's like, essentially we were trading people. And it's like, for me, from what I've seen, <laughs> we liked trading. It was like, hey, I like that they're different because then I could trade with them and I get something unique that I can trade with them with what I have, you know. And so we acknowledged each other's sovereignty and ability to do things the way that they do things. Like, that's how they do it, you know. Like, we're not going to try to impede and change it because we think our system is better or our religion is better or this is better. It's just kind of like, um, and I think that's also what I've seen globally is like, we're going to acknowledge your sovereignty and your ability that you do things differently, that you can govern yourself in your lands. And it's been working, you know, for time and memoriam. And um, so thank you for bringing that point up because yeah, definitely sovereignty is something deeper than just a uh, relation to the United States. Yes, exactly. I think that's, that's the point is yes. Sovereignty is deeper than the relationship with a colonial nation state that uses right. the term sovereignty to grant certain rights within certain parameters. Yes. Right. And also, <laughs> I also feel even now in our context, when we, we fight for our sovereign rights, you know, either against the United States or a corporation or whatever is impeding, uh, we're also doing it for other nations as well, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, setting the precedents for all of those other ones. And um, I'm always... Uh, proud of at least my nation and other nations who do take things to superior court and do in some of those cases because it does impact everybody else. Um, for even tribes who are smaller who may not have the resources to go to the Supreme Court or go you know, be able to fight those certain fights. I think I think Yeah, it's working so go ahead, Rick. I think there's one thing that we have to uh when it comes to like treaty rights or like um you know, our sovereign rights for food, for like, especially for, you know, the fishing rights. 
um, is that these treaty rights are not given from the U.S. to the Indians. They were actually, it was like acknowledgement. So it was like, we acknowledge right. that you have these rights. Like, we can't take them away yes. from you. So it was never like, it's the same thing with our sovereignty. Like, people think like, oh, the U.S. government gave us sovereignty. And it was like, no, they didn't. They acknowledged it, <laughs> you know. So it was like, we have sovereignty and they acknowledged it, you know, and we have to fight to make it stronger, you know, because obviously, you yeah. know, some 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 places they don't, you know, in other countries don't have the sovereignty, but with with colonization, but um, that's one thing that I think um, people kind of misconcept about our sovereignty is like we're give, it was given to us, and I don't I don't see it that way. I see that we've always had it, and even the court cases they state that even like you know the fishing cases up in Washington is like it always states that. Uh, <clears throat> the local indigenous had these rights before the constitution, you know? So. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, kind of on that note, uh, I know, uh, Rick was talking about before we kind of, before I went on that tangent, that's kind of related. <laughs> we were talking about, um, commercial commercialization. And I kind of, it made me think about like, my relationship with corn um, mm -hmm. and sort of that the the relationship that I have with corn, corn as in plural corn, um, all different kinds of corn, but also that idea that Rick was talking about, about like people, you know, going into Mexico and stealing certain recipes and then coming back and profiting off of that. Um, Man, that is such like a heated thing, especially in border areas like from where I'm from, you know, and like where we kind of, at least me and Rick kind of grew up like around that borderland um, area because there's such a politics of identity that's involved with that. And I think about especially now how it's the, the, the holiday season, right? So we have like the upcoming like thanks for taking <laughs> uh, <laughs> holiday. And then also the, um, that's not mine, it's a friend who told me that. And so I just that's decided good. to use it because it's really funny. Um, and then also, you know, the whole Jesus, the upcoming Jesus Day, um, the, the, the Christmas, the presents and all that stuff. And how for like in my communities, um, especially like the, the Mexican American communities, corn is such a huge thing, right? Because we use it in everything. It's like part of our tamales. It's part of our tortillas. It's part of our menudo. It's part of all these cultural foods uh, that we use, especially around the holidays. And I think about how a lot of that is uber commercialized, um, especially once you cross the border. Um, once you cross into the U.S., um, how I've always thought about like how corn changes literally as you cross the border because I grew up in El Paso and I also grew up in Juarez, so I have that sort of like, to me it's very much a privileged kind of like childhood in the sense that yes, we were poor, but I had the privilege of living in two different countries um, side by side um, with two very different worldviews. And I've always been interested in how corn changes, you know, on the Mexican side and how it changes on the American side and sort of like the relationships that people have specifically to corn, um, the corn plant and how it's processed and how, where we get the corn from. And I think commercialization is really important to me, uh, at least like thinking about it in the context of corn, 
because in the U.S., when you when you move up into the U.S. and like when we have our celebrations and our different holidays on the U.S. side with family, um, corn is like something that necessarily that needs to be there. It's a it's a must. We have to have these corn products, but nobody really questions where this corn is coming from, and nobody's really questioning like uh, how this corn is impacting environment. And I think corn specifically in the U.S. has a lot of the same impacts that, like, the soy example in Brazil would have, um, yeah. where it's just destroying a lot of land. And so it's these cultural foods that we're so connected to that are such a part of our identity, but we're not looking at where our corn flour is coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't really question that. Whereas, like, when, I, when it's in Juarez, when, when you cross the border... Um, you know, like there's a lot more opportunity to grind your own corn or to have corn that's ground uh, in the, the shop that you get your corn flour from um, or the tortillas are made from a certain type of corn and you know where it's coming from a little bit more than you would on the U.S. side. And so it's interesting to me how the same quote-unquote culture plays out depending on what side of the border you're on but also like the food systems that dominate our lives uh, through this imaginary border, which in my case is the river, right? Like the river, yes, it's a, it's like a border for sure. It's a geographical border, but like the ideological border that we've created, you know, is more pervasive in our everyday lives and how that influences how we consume corn and our relationship to corn to me has always like been so fascinating and I love like thinking about it um, because corn is such a, it's such an integral plant for me personally, you know? Um, so that's just, that's just something else I was, I was thinking about as we're talking about. Well, in general, like, totally. And you think about the majority of even things that we're talking about, like in uh, whole foods, things like amaranth or chia seeds or anything that has like a, I don't know, like... Superfood. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a lot of it came from the Americas, and that means all of our foods have been uh, commodified or the ones that could be commodified, whereas before you think about what were some of the ceremonies or, you know, the cultural significance of each of these foods because it does something, you know, very nutritious in your body or it does something very special in your body. Um, yeah. As well as just like the philosophy of how it grows, you know, either it grows out of um, very harsh, you know, weather or something like that. And it's just not appreciated when you see it somewhere at Whole Foods. It's like, oh, neat, I'm going to try this today, you know. Um, so it's like corn is definitely, I think, I feel is probably one of the biggest commodified um you know, indigenous, native to America's plants. Yeah. Because I feel, in a lot of sense, you know, just to be super radical sounding, I feel like it has definitely been um, abused in so many senses. Um, it's been genetically modified. It's, you know, what was it, like the majority of it that's grown in, at least in the United States, is not even for human consumption mm-hmm. um, it, you know, to feed the cattle. And there we go back into the meat industry you know, to feed the cattle, to feed, you know, uh, the chickens and things like that in those large corporations. But also it's just, you're right. It's like 
if you've ever had commodity food, which I did grow up on, you know, that was one of the staples that was in there was canned corn. And I'm sure that was far from tasting like anything like ancient corn uh, seeds and ancient uh, corn families that are extremely nutritious. You know, it just was kind of like stripped from any kind of flavor or nutrition that is, you know, wholesome. And that probably had a very special connection, you know, with its original people, with, with us, with our the original land and the original people. And, you know, and I think about all of the indigenous plants and foods from the Americas that have gone all the way around the world that are just like canned or frozen or something mm-hmm. like that. Or they're, they're so removed from what it used to be. But, yeah. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, yes. <laughs> um, and it's it's incredible, like, how many different foods actually came from the Americas that are so commodified now in every corner of the earth, you know, and how they're just, uh, there's such a, there's such a displacement of land, you know? And for me, corn, corn is just so amazing because it, the way corn has been used by so many different peoples and all the sort of like relationships that all different peoples from all different areas with throughout the Americas and kind of just the story of corn is the story of like diversity, you know, and like corn for me, it's really easy to like connect with the beauty of nature through corn and the beauty of like people and culture through corn because of all the different types of ways you can cultivate corn, all the different types of varieties of corn that have been uh, cared for by different peoples in different regions and how that corn has adapted, not just to the land, but to the people too, you know? And so there's this deep, intimate relationship um, with a lot of people all over the Americas with corn and kind of just like being able to cultivate that. And I think when we eat corn, you know, a lot of that is lost, one, because it's commodified and there's only like one or two types of corn that really is offered um, to the masses, Um, whereas any different type of corn is seen as this like uber specialized product that only certain people can have access to and only only certain people can engage with and things like that, you know, so like the issue of like that's kind of where sovereignty kind of starts to can get really political and like when you start talking about food especially because corn is so heavily like tied to culture for a lot of people, you know. But for me, like just just being able to respect corn, you know, as a as a sort of like being in itself, not just like as a plant from the traditional westernized sense, but as a as a interacting, you know, species of plant that interacts with all of the land and carries so much knowledge and stories. Like that's that's always been super fascinating to me. And I think I wish more people could see corn <laughs> in that way. You know, and I, I I know a lot of indigenous people do see corn that way, but I wish it was more prevalent, you know, with non indigenous people in a respectful way. Um, where it's acknowledging the, the, the beingness of corn, you know, like almost like the personhood of corn and kind of like understanding where corn comes from and how it's it's developed. And I think I, I wish a lot more uh, Mexican-Americans 
or, or Mexicans, you know, who especially around the border regions could see that a little bit more because a lot of us culturally have these really deep identities related to corn, um, but we might not necessarily engage with them in those ways because we're more concerned with making sure that we have tamales at Christmas as opposed to our relationship with the corn that's growing from the land that gives us those tamales for Christmas, at least in my experience. You know, that's been my experience growing up. Right. And, like, for corn, like, our equivalent, I'd say, would be, like, our huckleberries or our salmon, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just such a part of the culture. It's like, who would we be without salmon? You know, who would we be without our roots? And, um, again, that's why it ties back to sovereignty and the meat industry and stuff like that is just protecting those lands. And it even uh, filters into our, our native religion that we have here. It's about acknowledging those foods um, at a feast every, you know, every season to give it its time. It's like, this is, this is the season, you know, you guys got to appreciate it. Uh, and just be thankful that it comes back every year, you know, um, at least for us in that sense. And the way you talk about corn, it, it reminds me so much of that uh, because, it's, again, it's like it shaped our culture, who we are, our survival, um, as well as just I feel it was probably, it's probably one of the biggest commodified um, plants and food that there is, uh, probably on, on par with soy. But uh-huh. also, uh, just, just to put in a tidbit, uh, corn, also we use it up here, the whole plant. So we use like the leaves, we dry it out, and we make what we call corn husk bags. And it's just like yep. a, an integration of when we started having more. So we're also known for having hops, corn, and apples in our region. So we'd have like a lot of corn husks. We'd have uh, hops, and they used to take uh, the hops uh, strings and things that would have it on, they would make, they would weave baskets out of them, and they're really beautiful. And if you ever look up like uh, Yakima or Plateau, and it wasn't just us, it was other Plateau people, uh, like uh, corn husk bags or Sally bags, you know, integrated a lot of our ability to dye, you know, materials naturally as well as using natural um, elements, how to make bags and things like that. Um, it's just some traditional designs are integrated in there as well. So it's like in addition to not only giving sustenance, but it also gives our uh, functionality and art as well, you know. Um, so I feel like it has like such a diverse role in all kinds of things. I wanna, yeah. Wait, I, yeah. I, I have a small comment. Is that, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So another food that I know that's very... Um, commercialized and I think like commodified is avocados too. You know, it's like this whole thing, right. putting avocados <laughs> on guacamole on everything. And it's just now the prices for avocados are like skyrocketing. This is like a dollar or dollar <laughs> 50 for one avocado. It's just like, come on. Uh, and it, a lot of it has to do too also with its importance in, in like the vegan diet for those kind of more of like a mainstream vegan diet because it's like a healthy fat. Yep. Like mm-hmm. a certain kind of fat that you you normally get from like a if you had a normally heavy meat diet, you know, you would need a certain kind of fat. So avocados are like big again, like we say, like in Whole Foods and things like that. And um, you know, not 
you know, yeah, I, I like to make fun of Whole Foods, but, you know, it's such, like, a, a foreign thing for me on the reservation that I do go there when I go to Seattle. I'm like, what do they have in here, you know? Yeah. Like, what is this? And so I'll get some kind of, like, crazy-looking cookie because, like, I've never had those. What is this? But, um, you know, so, and that's a, the other thing that I also want to touch back onto is that we're not here to say, do this or else, you know, it's like, you're not an evil person if you shop at Whole Foods and you're not an evil person if you need or anything like that, but perhaps if you have the opportunity, please, you know, uh, refocus and kind of explore other options. And, you know, I think something that we didn't really touch on that we had talked about before is like the ability to eat indigenously, even if you're not an indigenous person. Yes. And that's just, that means being cognizant of where you're at. So it's like, there might not be a large availability of elk meat or deer meat or anything like that in like the Puget Sound or other regions that are more metropolitan, or even if you're in the desert or something, it's, it still means cognizant of, well, what grows naturally here and what um, can I eat more thankfully and essentially what tastes better. You know, a lot of it has to do with where you're at and just knowing what's native and indigenous to those areas and eating it in a thoughtful way. Mhm. Yeah. We were uh yeah. Let's so I, I, I'm reading this book. It's called um Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States. Um and I'm almost done with it and it's really good. Uh, I was just <laughs> reading about corn uh last night, so that's kind of why my mind is on corn again. I mean it's always on corn. But <laughs> but I I was thinking about that a lot. Um and it was also, so um, in the book, they, one of the authors, so it's a book that's written by indigenous people, which is great, because I wouldn't really want to read a book on indigenous food sovereignty that wasn't written by indigenous scholars or chefs. Um, <laughs> that would be concerning. Um, so one of the things that they were talking about, and kind of, Rick, I'm, I'm kind of curious what your perspective might be, is they were using the Comanche context um, and this wouldn't just apply to Comanche, but it would apply to um, people who weren't traditionally, like, quote-unquote, agricultural in the sense that, you know, they had plots of land um, that they grew certain foods on, where their lifestyles were more uh, moving around and kind of eating what the land offered or following, uh, you know, caribou or following seal or following bison or following whales or whatever. Um, animal that they were, you know, was part of the diet. And it just got me to thinking about the idea, again, of borders, the idea of, you know, assigning, basically, um, native lands to certain geographical regions with these imaginary borders kind of saying, like, this is where native people are allowed to be native, and you cross this line, and you're no longer native, now you're a U.S. citizen or whatever, right? And sort of the, the implication with that is like if you're talking about a context with the people who didn't have that concept of borders and, you know, maybe went north, south, east, west to follow different uh, different um, roaming, roaming uh, animals, for example, bison, uh, and that's just part of like the culture and that's kind of how the worldview kind of revolves around this roaming animal. And then you confine people to, you know, now you have these plots of land and suddenly it's like, okay, if you want to survive and you want to thrive, 
you gotta you gotta start doing agriculture, but not necessarily having that like ancient agricultural tradition. So having to kind of like borrow from different tribes um, or find our, their own ways on doing things. But then I thought about how when we talk about food sovereignty, especially when we talk about like diets, there's always this big assumption of land as farms or land as gardens. And just yesterday I was just like, wow, that even that could might be problematic when you talk about the context of like people who, you know, had the ability to roam and kind of eat off the land um, or to the animals and kind of how in a lot of ways, I'm interested in the ecological relationship that the land would have because of those people, because I'm thinking specifically about wolves and how wolves, you know, were killed and when they would step outside of borders, they were killed because they were attacking cattle or whatever. But once wolves were introduced back into like Yellowstone and allowed to like roam free, it had these really profound environmental benefits, you know? And so I'm thinking about, like, relationships that people have with land and how we're not a separate species, per se, from all the different species that are ecological components of that land, and how the narrative of land rights or land-based sort of, like, agriculture can be a little bit trickier for um, people who, who moved around traditionally, but it can also have ecological um, consequences that we don't understand because, you know, like if you take the wolves out of their natural habitat, a lot of things, a lot of really terrible things happen for the environment, but you put the roaming wolves back and you allow them to roam free without any borders, then all this beauty starts to happen, you know? And so it just got me thinking about like, imaginary borders, you know, like, and not geographical borders, but like this idea of sovereignty again, and just delineating sort of like borders around reservations and saying like, you know, this is your reservation, here's what's been assigned to you, and movement off of that is not allowed, or you can't be the same person that you are um, once you leave, you know, the, the, the confines of the reservation or whatever, and I guess, Rick, I'm curious on your perspective, um, what you might think of makes you think anything, because um, I was thinking about you as I was reading that. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes I've thought about that, like, you know, I think about what, what, it would, what would it look like if we introduced the bison back in the plains, like the same numbers, right? And I think this leads me to a conversation that... Um, um, a, a non-native friend I had with him and he was like, you know, talking about how there was a bear in his town in Washington and he, I think it was a Spokane or something like that. And he wanted to, like, he thinks the government should kill all the bears, right? I was like, well, that's stupid. Why would you kill the bears? And he was like, well, you know, they can do harm to me, my property or to my kids. You know, nobody wants, you know, the bear to eat their kids, but it's, it's like they, people want to be you know, they have a convenient life, this like American convenient life, you know, but this means like destroying like the environment or the animals, like, oh, there's too many deer. It's, they're causing traffic. Let's take them out. There's too many bison, you know, they cause traffic. Let's take them out. But with the whole Comanche thing, I know we didn't farm. I, th I think we, we actually um, uh, took the other tribes uh, f 
um, grains and whatever they grew, you know, with Comanches, <laughs> Comanches were Comanches. We, we asked, you know, we, we asked yeah. for tribute or we took it. Comanches are a different thing. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think it's hard <laughs> I feel, to... Uh, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So I, th- I think I it's hard... Say, I don't know. I, I think we're cutting off. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead, Rick. Okay. I'm okay. Okay. Go. So I think, I think it's hard to compare with the Comanches. A, a lot of us do like eating meats. And I, I know when I go to Oklahoma... A lot of them don't like eating fish unless it's catfish. It was, you know, it's kind of weird to me. Hate- yeah, they hate fish. And it's, to, to me, it's a really interesting story because one of the first times I met Robin was at a powwow in Portland and the Comanche Little Ponies were there. And, um, and the local native people, they fished salmon that morning and they were gifting it to Comanches. And a lot of Comanches didn't take the salmon because they don't like I guess they don't like seafood or they don't like, you know, fish. So I was just like shocked that, you know, that, that the local natives, you know, were trying to give them salmon and they were like, I don't know about this. You know, we don't like eating that, but it's just like, this. <laughs> it was like, why? I was like, okay, I'll take your salmon. <laughs> I'll take three or four of them. I, I asked, you know, I was and like, can it was we? Cooked traditionally. Yeah. It was cooked like traditionally, like on a stick and over a fire. Like it's, it was good. It was good, um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Uh, Ricardo told you this, but I'm also half Comanche. So that's yes. kind of like we're connected. Um, and I wanted to say that Comanches are just their own amalgamation. But if you want to think in terms of sovereignty in the United States, they were probably, you know, the embodiment of the biggest threat to the United States and the United States' um, vision or like their their perceived vision of what it would look like to almost like domesticate native people, you know, because it's like they didn't follow these rules. You know, like uh, like I said, a lot of the time native people acknowledge other native sovereignty, but at some point, like I said, the Comanches are their own thing. And it's like Comanches, I always like to say, well, equal opportunity raiders. They didn't care <laughs> if you were another nation. They didn't, under, they didn't care if you were the United States or if you were French or if you were Mexican, uh, Mexican or Navajo or Pueblo. It's like, you're here and you got something I like. And a lot of that had to do with their own history of um, essentially like being bullied, a lot, a lot of their own history of like just kind of being done with it, you know. And I think they just had the forefront and the foresight to see kind of what was going on in the big picture. And they were just kind of like, we're just not going to, you know, go along with any of this. And uh, the unfortunate part is just like trying to get them to one tract of land. And that was so hard because, and I also think that this had to do with, they were such a big threat to the United States because they didn't acknowledge borders, you know, which was the whole stick of the United States is like, let's have this border here. No, this tribe's over here and this tribe's here. So we're going to draw this line around them. And that's theirs Mm -hmm. now. But the, but the Comanche did not acknowledge that in any sense. They're like, we don't care. You know, like we're going to go anywhere. (laughs) And um, so it was hard also to get them to sign a treaty and to get them to agree to be, uh, to confine them to one place. And I also want to say that I think the roaming is also had to do with, um, I think that also had a lot, to do with the great eco- ecological growth of the area as well, you know, yeah. um, and I think that contributed to them uh, being a very fierce and very because um, they also ate indigenously wherever they went. Exactly. You know, so if they were happening to be in Navajo country, they would eat as Navajo people do. You know, even if they were following uh, the buffalo or they were following 
you know, whatever animal they were at the time, they would still eat as those native people did. And I think that's also a testament to just how strong they were as well. Um, also, they didn't mind breaking up within their own tribes. It's like part of them went here, part of them went there. And so you have specialized uh, different bands of Comanche who, they're all Comanche, but they all have slightly different um, cultures because yeah. of who they decided to settle with, you know, or where they decided to settle. Yeah, I was told that some Comanche bands, they when they raided, they sometimes they prefer Mexican women because Mexican women knew how to like uh, make bread, you know, and they can take them on the bread on raids. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it was just like <laughs> Comanche <laughs> Comanche history is very, I think, very unique when it comes to how they got big and they're, 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 the product, yeah. <laughs> they're the product of colonization. They the reason they they got so powerful was because they're fighting back against colonization. And they knew they, right. they they saw how the colonizers fought, and they they learned from them, and then they they used their own colonizers' own tactics. And then <clears throat> same thing with the food, you know, they were like, "Well, we gotta hunt and raid. We don't have to and fight. We don't have time to farm. We don't have time to farm on, on right. land." So we're, that's that's why the Comanches were. Also, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No. Also, they were just roaming people, and it's like you can't really take care of a farm if you're like roaming around. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, thanks. I, I, that was, that was sort of, in, I intentionally brought that up uh, for listeners because I think, um, you know, when we start talking, because that, that, that's directly tied to like meat consumption, right? That's, that's tied to like the militancy of like vegan vegetarian movements. It's all like, what would that mean for a Comanche person, you know, or a people's that would roam in that certain way where meat would have been a huge part of their life. You know, um, and so like when you're talking about like indigenous food sovereignty, um, like that's going to mean different things to different people, right? And how it plays out isn't going to necessarily always be in these neat little, everyone gets a reservation, everyone gets a plot of land, everyone grows certain types of plants, you know, and it's just like, and then, then, and then everything's happy-go-lucky when we all have borders around us and when we can all like, you know, strictly define who we are and trade with other different nations in that very strict, like, modern-day colonial border sense, you know? And so I think just adding the Comanche context to, like, conversation to me is really fascinating because it really disrupts a lot of the, the assumptions that I feel some people might make about food and diet and farming and agriculture um, so thanks, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if you, bring it up. Yeah, I think uh, if somebody tries to um, make Comanches not eat meat, it's the same thing that would happen if you try to force fish on them. Good luck, good luck on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> it's not gonna happen. <laughs> like it's silly, right? It's yeah. just it's just it's a ridiculous notion to to even try to think that everyone should have the same diet. And I think that's kind of what we were talking about, um, Robin, especially the last time we talked, was the idea of, like, place-based diets and, like, you know, just being cognizant of all the different foods around you and how that relates to everything that it's connected to. And it just kind of goes from there, I think. You know? It's true. Um, and in terms of Comanche, yeah, I've never actually tried to make any of my Comanche relatives 
vegetarian or veganism, but it is a good conversation with them. When they do come and visit, um, they want to cook for us because I do have Comanche relatives that come up and visit us sometimes and they'd want to cook with us. And I was like, okay. I go, but unfortunately, I don't eat any meat. I'm sorry if you have meat in there. She's like, oh. And I think she thought I was kidding at first. And so, <laughs> I was like, no, I don't. And then she kind of felt bad afterwards. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's like, it's okay. It's like, it's all right. You know, I'm okay. She's like, okay. I'm sorry. I go, I'm sorry. I hope I didn't offend you. And, but it's just kind of like a, a conversation starter. And, um, and I think I know you and I talked about when we kind of brought our lifestyles to our family and how there's a pushback we got from that and how I felt at least fortunate in the sense that later on, as my family had seen that this was something I was going to commit to for my life, um, they kind of thought it was fun. At some point, they were like, hey, I made something that you can eat, you know, <laughs> and they were really happy to do that um, because it was kind of new and different for them. But I know that that's not always the case. You know, that's unfortunately not always what happens. And I felt fortunate that my family just kind of saw it as a challenge at that point. They're like, oh, we're going to make something Robin could eat, you know. But um, I don't know what that would look like in a Comanche context. I mean, I think a lot of it does. And I want to say that even in that time when they were roaming, they probably did, like, slaughter a cow. I'm pretty sure they did, you know. So I'm sure they ate cows then as well. But, um, of course, that would be after contact and after all of that. But right. uh, it would be hard to start the conversation. But a lot of it, like you said, has to be you have to be the, like, example. You have to sit there and be, like, the person and kind of let them come to you to start that conversation. Yeah, I think every, and everybody's different, too, yeah. I think. You know, every, even every Comanche, like, some Comanches like fish, some don't. Like, that's one good memory I have is... Uh, going to Thanksgiving at your house in, on the res, Robin, and then um, uh, talking to your dad about our love for eel, you know, so. For eel? No, eel. The eel. <laughs> eel. Oh, eel. Oh, oatmeal. Yeah. Okay. No, no, not oatmeal. Oh, eel. oatmeal. Eel, E-E-L, the, the, the fish. Oh, eel. Yeah. Yeah. So my dad, he, um. He's well, my uh, late dad, so he had passed away a few years ago, but he was a Comanche who moved up to the Northwest, and my mom obviously is Yakima, and she uh, comes from a very fishing-heavy community and tribe, and so my dad had tried eel for the first time. He went eeling with my uncles, and it freaked him out. But he, uh, my mom thought it was funny because what he did to make it better, like when he started eating eel because it's really oily, it's super oily, um, he just like put mustard on it. He's like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. So he started to really, <laughs> yeah. But what I appreciated about his Comanche heritage, just, this is just my own thinking, is that he had the ability to adapt wherever he went. And so like yeah. despite that maybe he didn't want to try it, the fact that he's like, okay, I live here now, you know, I need to adapt to what's going on here. He, you know, by the time he was an old man, he loves seafood. He loves crab. He loves lobster, you know, and everything in the sea at that point, you know, I was really glad because, you know, I like seafood. Um, and, of course, I feel like it's a traditional food for our people, so I love eating our traditional seafoods. And so I was, I felt that that was a part of his Comanche um upbringing and his Comanche this genetic makeup is despite that, you know, Comanches raided people and this stuff, they also were highly adaptable to wherever they went, you know, which also speaks to their diet of eating indigenously wherever they were. And so he, um, 
like you said, when you were able to visit with him, uh, you guys were talking about eels and, and Comanches coming up to the Northwest, essentially, and being able to talk about um, having food seem jarring at first, but then I'm um, like, hey, they're not so bad, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then also, like, understanding that it's not set in stone. Like, diet is, is oh. in, my, in my sense, of, it is about being adaptable. You know, like, it's being cognizant of, what's the land around you, but also, you know, adapting it. And we were talking about this, but like making it better, you know, um, or making it more inclusive of all the different people um, who are there. Um, I think in, in, in our context, you were talking about like having like Mexicans within your community and then, you know, they make elk tamales. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, my friends, you know, we had elk food. They'd ask for elk, or we'd just give them elk, and they were really happy. And they were, they'd come back with elk tamales. Like, and that was that I really enjoyed. That was really kind of, and we were both like, I told you, like we're both so proud of it. We're like, oh, look at me, babe. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of like what I think what the future could look like. You know, it's not about necessarily like policing identity or like policing certain foods in certain areas. It's more about like adapting. You know, like adapting, um, not in the sense of dominating land, in, but in the sense of like bringing, sharing, you know, sharing our cultures, sharing our heritage, sharing our foods, and then kind of just using that as a starting point to kind of be more in, be more direct in, in giving back to the earth, I think, or at least developing a stronger relationship to whatever land uh, that we're actually physically a part of. You know, that's right. always been really important to me um, everywhere I go. So, you know, yeah. And being cognizant of that we are a part of that system. Um, mm-hmm. instead of yeah, whether to... you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Instead of trying to, like, manipulate the system and um, dominate it, like, just being a part of it and recognizing that as humans, we are animals in that system and we are just... Mm-hmm acknowledge that it feels like again it just a lot of it has to do with feeling for me is like it just feels better to be a part yeah. of yeah yeah I would I would agree completely um I don't know if I I kind of wanted to like I guess tell a little bit of, of my story too I don't I think it might help listeners to kind of get some context and also just okay. share with you all uh, <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so when I was, uh, I think food for me has always been a big thing, but I think one of my relationship with food radically changed when I left. So I was an exchange student um, in high school, and I moved to Japan for the first time because uh, I lived there three different times um, when I was 16, going on 17. And so I was living with the host family for about a year. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, my host family was very traditional, um, traditional old school Japanese. So a lot of the foods that we ate, um, my host mom would make, and I learned a lot from her um, because of that. You know, and it's Japan is very well known for having a very, at least in traditional uh, Japanese, having a very place-based kind of diet, very fresh. Uh, literally, like you collect stuff that day and then you eat it. You know. Um, because it goes bad really quickly because it's so fresh, um, especially because there's a lot of seafood involved. There's a lot of things that spoil 
once they leave the ocean. <laughs> um, and so I was able to like, you know, be a part of that for a year and I didn't have access to any of like my uh, Mexican food that I grew up on, right? But I mentioned this to Robin, but something that my grandma um, always told me was like, wherever you go, like eat everything, you know, like eat everything that you're given and try to eat everything that's around you. And that's kind of how I relate a lot to like new places that I'm in. That's kind of how I connect uh, to the land, I guess, is through food, um, through local foods, but also like understanding who's growing that food, the kinds of systems that um, are part of that food. And so I think for me, I started learning that I had to leave my own culture in order to recognize that, in order to be able to come back and understand my own culture better and understand the foods that are part of, you know, our diets and kind of um, the different relationships involved with that. But I kind of had to, like, leave and experience it in a different culture in order to come back and appreciate, I guess, who I was a little bit more. Um, and it's kind of food, ever since then, food has always been a huge part of my life. And I did have a lot of, like, really... Um, uh, beneficial like health consequences um, from moving to Japan. So I used to be like really really overweight when I was when I was a kid, and before I left to Japan, I was really heavy. Um, I had a, uh, I had some health problems, and so like moving to Japan um, and being able to eat that fresh diet, but also being able to have like exercise as part of my everyday routine, just dramatically shifted the way I thought about health the way I thought about food. Um, and I guess ever since then, I've just always thought about it and coming back and especially like interacting and reading up my own history and interacting with a lot of indigenous peoples has just been really relevant to, I think, who I am as a person. Um, and so it's been really cool, you know? So I love having these conversations <laughs> because food is such a huge part of my life, but especially plant foods um, and, and plants, you know, and just eating plants and cultivating plants and having relationships with different plants through through eating them. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for well, sharing thank that. Thank you. I, was, uh, I think when we had first talked, I had actually wondered what your story was too, but I didn't want to ask. So, yeah, but and I don't remember if I had told you or not. So. No. <laughs> I don't think I told you mine either, so I, I don't think we even shared that uh, initial part, like why we had even initially started rethinking food and like going back to um, like indigenous diets and um, or ways of being essentially. I don't always like to say diet, um, but yeah. indigenous eating and being more cognizant of um, everything because it does start with food and then it re, re makes you re-examine everything, like everything like down to your clothes and mm -hmm. like we're mm -hmm. traveling to and the conversations that you have. Um, yeah. Thank you and I mean, it, it is also like something that, you know, Western science has been examining and there's so much, there's so much data and evidence for healthful diets um, being incredibly beneficial to your body. And I mean, to me, that's, that's obvious, you know, because I've lived through that. But to somebody who's considering, you know, or who might 
not, you know, like the, the people that we get pushback from, you know, it's not going to be as obvious to them oh. until we actually start. Go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, yeah. And so it's just, I don't know, for me, it's been very, um, it's been such a journey. I think that's something that we kept talking about is how it's been such a journey and such a, you know, it continues to be a journey. And I feel very grateful that I guess I can be, I can still be learning, you know, like even as I grow as a person, like I'm, I'm always growing. Um, and I love that. And I love that food for me helps me do that, you know? Um, and I, I also mentioned that, like I grew up in the desert and I'm, I'm living in a desert. So it's not the desert I was born in, but it's one that's close um, and very similar uh, to the one I grew up in. And it's just, it's been so incredible for me to have access to all these different foods that, that I really love and, you know, being able to get them so easily, but also being able to have the sorts of like relationships with the plants that, that I grew up around um, and that, you know, that are very deeply tied to my sense of self and my sense of identity and just being able to, to be a part of that, um, I think for me is, it's a, it's a huge privilege, you know, um, and it's definitely something that I've worked on very hard to like get to this point, but also like I wish and I hope that more people, you know, are, able um, and not fearful to kind of like take their own journey um, and I hope that you know at least for listeners but just like the people that we influence that we can establish some sort of community or some sort of support um, and let people know that they're not alone and that yes it's scary because we have such conditioned commercialization in a lot of our cultures but yeah. that it's at the end of the day it's about you, but it's about you not in the individualistic sense, it's about you in the connected sense, you know, and the being able to connect with everything that's around you, not just people, but, you know, like the, the earth, literally, um, the different scents and smells and flavors and, you know, and it's just like, I think about my health now where I've gotten to the point where I have such an intimate relationship with my gut that like it, it it shares things with me, you know, like it's there's so many scents in the air that say certain things. Um, there's so many flavors in foods that speak certain ways, you know, like I don't want to romanticize it and be like, ooh, it's like hippie new age crap because it's not. It's very real. It's very like it's not metaphysical. It's physical. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, like, I know you understand what I'm trying to say, but, like, for, you know, for, for listeners who are maybe, like, thinking about taking a journey into, like, food and being more conscious about food choices, like, it has so many benefits and, like, there's no, you're going to be better because of it, you know, um, and just engaging with food and what you consume, it, it does so much to your body um, in such beneficial ways even as scary um, or as unknown as it can be initially. I right. It's kind of the point of my story sharing. <laughs> no, thank you so much. That was, that was really good. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Uh, and just kind of the things I kind of wanted to touch on that perhaps that 
we were saying that obviously this topic could be amongst several shows, um, mm -hmm. but we're cognizant that it's before what did you say? Thanks giving. I can't remember what you said. It. Thanks for taking. There you go. Thanks for taking. Um, <laughs> is right before then, and it also some of the things that we had talked about before that are also part of this is like control of what you're consuming, um, societal norms connected to hypermasculinity and meat, um, as uh -huh. well. Like, um, control over women and land um, or domination in that sense over animals and land and people as well as getting back to um, instinctual kind of things like survival mode and hunting and things like that as well as what were some of the other things that we had uh, talked about just how it's uh, we kind of covered a lot how it's a uh, tied with identity but also how it's tied with class we touched a little bit on how it's tied with class but um, uh -huh. just like how even vegetables get tied with class, like we're saying, like talking about whole foods and all of those other things, but primarily meat being a way to show wealth and things like that. Um, and then just your contribution to uh, societal norms um, coming back to hypermasculinity and meat consumption and things like that. But, um, and not even touching things like, like obesity in terms of um, signs of depression, right. eating and stuff like that. But um, I'm not sure. I'm trying to also be cognizant of everybody's time as well. So, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm not sure. Should we, how do we do this now? Are we going to like give thoughts, more thoughts? I'm willing to talk about it. Yeah, maybe we could, um, maybe we could give some closing thoughts, um, each of us, because um, I definitely know uh, this is a continuing conversation, so we'll definitely probably be having future episodes talking more specifics, or we could talk about those different, more detailed things and how they relate to other things. Um, because obviously diet and food is such a, big thing, you know, um, it's everything, I would say. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of hard to do one episode about everything. Um, but yeah, maybe we can we can give some closing thoughts. Um, and then, you know, we'll continue the conversation um, at, at a later in a later episode, hopefully. Okay. Does Rick want to go first? I'll go last. Oh, okay. You'll go last. Okay. Um, <laughs> I can go. You want to? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, I want to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving or thank you for taking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. I, yeah, it's one of my friends. It's a, it's an indigenous <laughs> friend from New York who told me that, and I was like, oh my god, that's so great. And so I just sort of adapted it. So anyway. <laughs> and you know, even just the history around Thanksgiving, and almost like it's made-up history of Thanksgiving, but I know that Native people and Indigenous people have the ability to make something um, out of nothing, and they have the ability to make something joyful and um, inclusive, even when it has a horrible backstory or anything like that. So, and in addition to, like, having fry bread, I don't want to villainize fry bread or villainize people who eat it. Um, I also don't want to villainize people who celebrate Thanksgiving, but I also think that they're not necessarily celebrating Thanksgiving. Um, I always say that like Native people even have a 
Columbus Day powwow. It's like, we don't care. You want, an, you want an excuse to celebrate something, you know? And it doesn't really matter what it is, just, you know, celebrating life in general. And so those who are getting ready for Thanksgiving, um, I think that is like the best time to also celebrate. Um, and essentially that's, I feel like it's the season to celebrate squashes and pumpkins and things like that um, for eating. And it's always a fun way to get out that conversation, um, whether or not you're sitting around the table in the spirit of whatever Thanksgiving is. Uh, I understand it's just a gathering. And for my family, you know, and Rick knows this, that being, you know, he came over for Thanksgiving and uh, sure we did like a traditional, well, perceived to be traditional American version, but it wasn't about celebrating Thanksgiving. It was about celebrating each other and being able to come together with food. And that's where we had touched on before has to do with survival. And, but we're also trying to tap into little by little, little, the idea of thriving as nations, as people. And um, so happy. Thanks for taking (laughs) Thanksgiving to those who are finding a way to make whatever that holiday is um, something that's positive for your family and a a good way to introduce um, traditional foods of the time uh, that are in season as well as traditional foods that are from the area uh, that just taste good and sharing it with people and being open um, to those who have different ideas of the way that they want to eat and consume things and I just I am always an open book. If anybody wants to ask me anything about it, I'm open about it. Um, and I appreciate all of the conversation here. This is a good introduction to my first podcast. I let the everybody knows like I was really nervous about this. I think it took a while <laughs> to come around to it. <laughs> but it took the the idea of um, eating indigenously and indigenous veganism and vegetarian to actually get me out because it's something that's very important to me, um, as well as. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Everybody has a great time. And thank you so much for letting this be my introduction to everybody. Like this is, this is really great. Yeah. um, Thank you for being on the show. I know our previous conversation was really good too. And I feel like this was also uh, really good and really productive and a good stepping point, you know, for future conversations and expanding it. Um, So I guess some final thoughts I have was, um, kind of everything that's already been mentioned to the um maybe if I were to speak more to like an individual listening or maybe considering is something that I think is really a, a really important takeaway, at least for me, is um understanding relationships, um understanding the relationality that we have with food. But it goes for me it goes deeper than that. It goes for a relation the relationships that we have with uh, different species. Um, I'm, I'm heavily invested in plants, uh, <laughs> as, as most folks know by now. Um, and, you know, it's, for me, like, eating is an expression. It's, very, it's a very artistic thing for me um, because it's an expression of, like, existence, you know? Um, and I think it's particularly relevant around this season, you know, where we're talking about giving thanks um, and all that good stuff is to actually think about what does that mean? You know, like a lot of the time we talk about 
being thankful for company, for the food, for the products, for the sort of like, you know, tangible things that we have um, in our lives, you know. Um, but we forget about being thankful for the actual food. You know, like for me, um, eating corn is, I am so grateful for corn. You know, I am so grateful for all the different people who have cultivated corn throughout millennia, centuries, um, you know, and I just, corn is such such a big thing for me, and I, I see plants as like, um, very much like relatives, you know, and a lot of a lot of people have said that before too. And then to me, that's that's very much a, a lived reality. And so, when you're eating when you're eating food, you know, if if they're your children and you've helped cultivate them, like you're gonna care for that generation, you know, and you're gonna want to promote that generation. And you're part of you are part of the food that you consume. You know, no matter how complex the web is, it's kind of we're all connected. And I think just acknowledging that for me is really important. Um, and you know, for listeners going into this Thanksgiving holiday and even like upcoming Christmas, it's you know just acknowledging the thanks for the food, but the thanks that the food exists and that we can eat it. Um, not to continue to just survive, but to continue to have really deep relationships. Um, with what we're eating um, and all the different like biophysiological processes that we owe to our food consumption um, and how all of that plays out in our in our everyday life. Um, and that's kind of the way I think, <laughs> just in general. Um, but I think th those would be my kind of closing thoughts just for this conversation in particular. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> well, thank you both for um, talking about this. I know I'm not as knowledgeable on this topic, you know. Um, I think I've uh, had these experiences with you guys since, well, for, with Robin for like almost a decade and with Ainan, with a short time he's been, you know, they've been living here in, in San Antonio. I think that even I tried to modify my, my diet or my consumption you know, to be healthier. And that's another, you know, long story. But um, I think everybody should be respectful of um, everybody's diet, you know. And I think sometimes when you guys come over and I, you know, like I think the first time I remember the first thing I, I fed Robin was a mole. And I didn't know she, you know, Robin was uh, vegetarian and she still ate it and I, w I felt bad after you know and I think <laughs> it's good to ask your friends what their diet is you know and I think it's good to you know um, you know uh, fit their fit their diet when they come over don't don't you know be like oh well this is my house you guys eat meat no that's wrong I think you gotta like conform you know a little bit to your friends diets and you know it's all about solidarity together too you know so um, is it okay if I talk about the subject I talked about before the show for like two minutes? Okay. Yeah, sure. You know, there's something I want to talk about, and I've been getting harassed lately. The what the, the decolonized uh, Twitter and me, and you know, as a person, the last couple of days from this individual, Robin knows she's been reading a lot the last you know month, and um, so that I know too. But there's something in politics that I think exists. 
that people don't really talk about is that, you know, in politics or in, you know, in academia, if you don't like an idea or you think it's wrong, the best thing to do is to give a rebuttal, right? And then that person will give a rebuttal and the rebuttal is happening. It's how academia grows, you know? But I think um, when people don't have rebuttals, the next step to do is they start attacking a person's character because they don't have a rebuttal, right? And I think some that's what's going on with me. And it's like this whole, like, oh, uh, Rick was in the military, so his opinion doesn't matter. And I think that's fucking stupid. You know, I think we talked about this in the other show, how I, I was homeless and living in the car with a baby, you know, and, and I joined the military to, you know, get out of that. And to me, I'm not going to apologize, you know, for, you know, do, m- making that life choice so other people can, you know, I think no matter what people, no matter what I've done in the past or what I've said, people are going to use anything they can know about me to like belittle this podcast, belittle my voice, you know, and I think um, that's, that's low level politics. You know, so if people want to come on the show and they, they don't like something we said, they can come on. But the moment you you start like harassing, giving me phone calls during my family time, you know, when I'm in the movies, to me that's stupid. Like you know, this Joaquin person or this like uh, Mr. Sandoval, whatever this person you know, first name is Sandoval in Washington. You know, I think that. Um, I don't, it's like some people want this attention, you know, it's fine to have dialogue, but it's not okay to have dialogue when it comes, when it becomes like meaningless, you know, talk about, talk about what I'm saying. It's fine. You know, I, I don't care if you criticize what I'm saying, then, then bring something up. But the moment you start talking trash about indigenous people or indigenous sovereignty, or you start just misappropriating and you think you have a right to misappropriate or silencing indigenous voices because you assume you're indigenous, I don't care. You know, and there's something that I talked to Robin yesterday is I don't give a fuck about people's opinions. I'm fuck it. You know, I might sound angry when I type, but I'm not. I don't I don't really care if you if you like it or you not or you don't or if you think like you're trying to change my mind. Like, I'm not going to like get mad about it. But I, what I do get mad about is when people call me on my personal phone during the time I spend the time with my family, you know. Yeah, I mean. As long as I've known you, like <laughs> that's one of the, the the wonderful things about you is like, yeah, the, the not giving a fuck about a lot of things, and I appreciate that because I'm almost the opposite, and so I think you know we've talked about this before, but there's definitely a balancing that we balance each other out in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. No, I would agree. Um... <laughs> I think we had mentioned earlier that um, uh, Rick kind of attracts that kind of attention sometimes <laughs> because yeah. he's so, um, uh, what do you call it? He believes in something very passionately. And uh, I do appreciate just the creation of this podcast in general for hearing different points of view. And I think, as you had mentioned before, Rick, like anybody's welcome on here to to say it. And it's definitely not going to be an environment of you're going to be on my show, so I'm right. You know, that kind of attitude is definitely not that. Um, I think even just talking about vegetarian and veganism, you know, with Rick, 
you know, he's always very open into listening to what I had to say or my own philosophies on the matter um, because he's not, you know, he, he just, you know, he, he's fine with eating meat and things like that. And, you know, it's, he's willing to listen to those points of view. Um, but again, also, as we have all discussed before, like it's an open forum, it's open for them, for anybody to come on and uh, present any kind of challenge. And I think that's just the biggest mark of being a mature person as well as just an open person is just always leaving that open for them. Exactly. Um, and so I commend that in a sense, and I'd love to hear any dialogue that they have you know, real dialogue in terms of um, being able to be in the open to talk about this, you know, and there's the other part of um, being accountable for your words and your actions and what you're doing to a larger audience. So the community can also weigh in and what you're saying and what you're doing. Uh -huh. um, that's the best way to get a good, not only dialogue, but a good uh, rethinking strategy of how you're going to present your feelings or your, your beliefs. That's what that's what a topic that um, I think James is going to bring on with a professor here from uh, UTSA is that there's like uh, this culture that people go into their bubbles and they they don't want to listen to other you know political or cultural or you know any other opinions outside of theirs and I think when people talk shit to each other via social media that's not that's not dialogue it's a waste of time you know and right. I think um, you know it, to me it's just like this is the this, I'm never going to mention or, or acknowledge my time in the service again. My voice as a native person doesn't go away because I, I serve time in the military. If you think that, fuck you, you're an idiot. That's all I got to say, you know? Well, also, you know, and being with that as well, I mean, that's something that we as native people love to acknowledge is that you're a veteran. You know, whether or not you've seen wartime or you... Um, you know, but any battles, the fact that uh, you're defending the land and for Native people, at least from my perspective, being a Native person on a reservation is like your time in service had nothing to do with being a part of the cog that people think is the imperialist United States. It had to do with that's how you're defending our land because, again, yeah. the sovereignty, it's like if you're going to deteriorate Native uh, tribal sovereignty, you're going to deteriorate everything else. You know, it's just that's the first line of defense. And for us, we literally mean it. We're going to be the first line of defense. I have uncles that I feel are revered uh, who went into Vietnam, who went into World War One, and they weren't fighting for the United States. They were fighting for us, like to a literal sense. They were fighting for our reservation, for our homelands and our fish and everything. And so we always revere our veterans you know no matter what era that they were in and so and we've seen that you know also uh, the comanche nation um, like colonel pewardy and all of them had um, when they came up with the comanche uh, little ponies um our comanche elders revered ricardo at our gourd dances for being a, a veteran because that's it's a part of our fighting spirit is you know, we've been having the fight for our land and our rights for time and memoriam since contact. And, you know, it just continues to this day. It's like we're always going to fight for the land, no matter what, no matter what capacity, as long as it has to do with our people, we're going to fight for it. Yeah. So I also want to thank you for joining the show, too. I think that 
you've been really important person as a, you know, for me as a growth, as an individual, every time I think, um, every time I had like, um, conflict in me with this for like Indian, Indian politics or Indian culture, or even like personal, you know, my personal life, you know, I think I, I went to you, you know, for, for like, uh, advice, you know? And I think, um, we always talked about like the most deepest things, like, you know, same thing with like diet and stuff like that. And I think your voice, you know, I, there's some things I can't bring to the podcast is the voice of like indigenous woman. Right. And I think your voice is important as that. And I think, you know, you're going to answer questions that I can't answer. And I, I, I would like that, you know, and I think, um, I'm grateful that you joined the show. No, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.